Welcome back to Travolta. Hosted by Jeff Sweeney and Stuart Elmore. Covering the Taken of Pelham 1 2 3. With special guest, Cole Bradley. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Cole. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Stuart just made an executive decision because we started talking about the movie. Yeah, he said, yeah. I'm the yeah. He said, I'm hitting the record button. We just, need to start, we just needed to start recording right mm. away or else we were going to lose all the talk. Yeah. Um, but the conversation we were talking about before we hopped in was I did not take any notes on this movie. Yes, um, you did not. I did. Yeah, you did. I, Cole did. I also did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By the so, way, Cole, hi. It's been it's great to see you on this podcast. Um joined via Zoom call. Um, yes, I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. I have been looking forward to showing up here and talking about the best John Travolta movie. Where where are you calling in from? Uh Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Oh, yes, a basement no. in Brooklyn. <laughs> no. let, me, let me tell you something. No, let me is. tell you something. Oh shit, there it is. <laughs> Fucking hell. New York. The greatest fucking scene in the world. Yeah, yeah. Jeff, I'm I'm gonna tell you something <laughs> that is probably gonna get cut out. Go on. I'm in a very Jamaican neighborhood of Brooklyn. Well, you know, it's the greatest <laughs> scene in the world for some reasons. <laughs> I'll pack a bus up your ass sideways. <laughs> I mean, so we are joined here by Cole to talk about um The Taking of Pelham one, one two, two, three. three. Not four. Not five. That was terrible. I'm sorry. Which, watching it today, I was starting to wonder if maybe it should be... I know they say one, two, three in the movie, but shouldn't it maybe be the taking of Pelham 123? Yeah, it absolutely should. <laughs> because it's based off the time it departs yeah. from the station. But the novel the novel is written out, and the original movie yeah. is written out one, two, three in words, not in numbers. And that's the thing that's slightly... is that... In the movie, they say both ways. Yeah. At multiple points, Denzel says one twenty three, and then he says one two three next. Yeah. Um. So one two three is more fun to say. Yeah, it is. Just because it it it's, it's le- it makes less sense, so it's more fun <laughs> to say taking a Pelham one two three. You know, we're, we're gonna jump right into the context with this little comment I want to make, but this is directed by Tony Scott, really Scott's yes. brother. Do you want to know another movie he made? I'm sure Cole has seen it. I- <laughs> are you talking about Unstoppable? Unstoppable, which Cole, what is Unstoppable about, and who is its main star? It's a Denzel. It's it's the third in the trilogy. <laughs> Wait, there's a trilogy? <laughs> yes, there's a trilogy of Un- Denzel trade movies. There's a trilogy, and I, I consider them a trilogy because they're they're both baton passes between from Deja Vu to Pelham, and then from Pelham to Unstoppable, because Unstoppable and Pelham are both. Denzel is uh, works in trains and is dealing with an issue with a train and Deja Vu and Unstoppable, Unpelham, sorry, are both action movies that are predicated about what if Denzel Washington was sitting at a desk for the entire movie while all the actual drama was happening on the other side of a screen in a phone call. Oh my God. 
which is what Deja Vu. Have you guys seen Deja Vu? I'm not in a long okay. time. Side side Deja Vu corner. The premise <laughs> of Deja Vu. Holy shit. No, because I think it's important to discuss what's going on with Emily and Pelham. It's to understand what Tony Scott had just done with Deja Vu, one of the great American movies. I fucking love Deja Vu. Um, the, the, the premise of Deja Vu is that a terrorist attack has happened. But yeah. there is a technology that lets them look into the past. Mm -hmm. So Denzel Washington is the cop investigating this terrorist attack. He can't change the past, but he can watch the past. So for a good chunk of the movie, until it gets a little fussy, fuzzy with all that, he's looking at things that have already happened. And it's kind of the source code thing of like wanting to change it. But the limits of the technology and time means that he can't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like Rear Window in that way. It's very Rear Window. So, Stuart, yeah, I want to sidebar to the context corner about this episode. <laughs> so, Cole was one of the first people I reached out to to come on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, he was in the very list. Originally, he was going to do Blowout. What? I, with, with Mark. Okay. It was going to be a double-hander. And then Cole backed out to take this movie. Really? Well, I should say is that Jeff asked, like, what John Travolta movie do you want to be on? And I literally was just like, eh, what are the ones I like? And I kind of just said blood as a stock. And then just making it sound like I backed out. I didn't. I don't think it even counts as backing out. It was 30 seconds later. Yeah. I had to come to Jesus moment. I was like, oh, right. Blowout's the second best John Travolta movie. I want to be on the best John Travolta movie. I want to talk about taking a minute. One, two, three. Wait a shit minute. about Blowout. Like, I love Blowout. Blowout's great. Sure, we are five minutes. better Brian De Palma movies. But I want to talk about a late period Tony Scott masterpiece. Wait, we are five minutes of this podcast, and we are already spewing blasphemy like <laughs> taking a Pelham as the best John Travolta movie? Yeah, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> Blowout is the only real competition. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay. So, Hold on. So, Hold on. I've, was so, I've been looking forward to this episode because Cole, Cole and I are good friends, and he talks a lot about Tony Scott and his admiration for the man. And I mean, so the one fact of that we, the great directors of the post-war era. And that we were going to have this guy on to talk about not only a John Travolta movie, but Tony Scott. I knew this was going to be special. Uh, oh unstoppable God. is also a great, a great <laughs> movie. And Denzel's great incredible movie. and unstoppable. I mean, what's a better John Travolta movie? Blowout. Pulp Fiction. Maybe. maybe. Perfect. Denzel Washington is not in Blowout. I think that's what like tips the scales for me. But I think to even go even further... I don't think this is a true John Travolta movie. It's a Denzel movie. Joander. Well, but like Travolta's just like in it and he's the bad he's, guy. He's pretty good in it though. He's in it more than Shaw is in the original. The original film. The original is not a two-hander. This is a full-on two-hander. And I would in fact argue that this movie is in a lot of ways about the idea of a movie being a two-hander. Mm-hmm. That 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 so much of the juice of this movie is in the kind of metatextual idea of it being a Denzel Travolta movie, as opposed to Unstoppable, which is Denzel and also Pine. Yeah. But also that doesn't matter. This is a movie about the way movie stars relate to each other mm -hmm. on camera. 
I love that take. Oh my it's what and we no are, and no we are we're not gonna even dive ten into minutes this. into this podcast. Oh okay. my god! Let's go to the context corner. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we gotta go to the... before we get into the the meat of it. Uh, so I did not have a lot of time to do a huge amount of research for this movie. I will admit, um, Cole, you might know a little more, um, but this is based on a novel, uh, <laughs> and that that's the context. <laughs> no, oh really? No, I'm kidding. Um, it's based on a novel by John Gotti. Got Goody Gotti? How do you say? G-O-D-E-Y. Would that be Gotti? Goaty. A Goaty? Goaty, probably. Goaty? Yeah. Okay, I, wanted, yeah. I was really hoping it was John I Gotti. knew a Goaty who was spelled very similarly okay. to that. But it's um, it's based on that novel and in also in some way a original feature film called The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, but spe- 1, 2, and 3 were spelled out in mm. the original film, uh, which was a Joseph Sargent film starring Walter Matthau and Robert Shaw. Um, mm. And... Th- there's also a, a TV film, apparently, that uh, does not have an image on Wikipedia and thereby probably uh, does not exist. Does not exist. <laughs> the TV movie that I always forget exists until I'm on the Wikipedia page for either this one wait, or the Walter Matthau. Wait a second. One. Wait a second. The, this 1998, yeah, the ki- it stars Edward James Olmos, yep. Vincent D'Onofrio, and yep. Richard Schiff? Yep. <laughs> what the fuck? And Donnie Wahlberg. <laughs> Donnie Wahlberg. Oh God! And Lorraine Bracco because she was with Edward James almost at the time. at that time. I don't know if they're still together. Uh, I just found out that they were a couple or are a couple, maybe. Interesting. Uh, so this um, I'm so unprepared for this context corner, but we're we're going into it. We're going, we're going into, into it. it. And so, um, sometime around like 2005, 2006 ish. The idea was, you know, thrust into the void of remaking the original film slash doing a new adaptation of the novel. The original screenplay was written by David Cope or Coop. However, I think you... it's Kep. Actually, Kep? is it Kep? I think it is Kep. I, K- I think it's Kep. Is it K O E P? Yes. Yeah, is it it's David. Kep. David Kep. It's Kep. Um, who dis- who wanted to dive into it as reimagining the original story in a post nine eleven world. Hmm. Um, and like the upgrades of surveillance technology and the yeah. police state and whatnot, yeah, and kind of diving yeah. more into that aspect of the story. Right, that makes sense. Um, the Which film... I think I think is there in this movie. Oh, it's 100%. just the Tony Scott thing where he's never gonna have anyone say that's what it is. It's, yeah, Tony Scott is like the master of subtext, mm-hmm. and I think this is very much a movie about post 9-11 New York and post 9-11 NYPD yeah. in particular. Tony Scott's one of his great skills is that he makes these like hyper stylized action movies that on their face are just about like the story being told. And like you said, the subtext is very much embedded in the actions of the characters and in the actions of just the filmmaking itself instead yeah. of any character ever talking about it. I think the thing that trips people up with him a lot is that his movies are so narratively upbeat yeah. and happy and they have happy endings and they're about very, you know, upstanding heroes triumphing. And that's what they're about on a narrative level. But I feel like with basically every Tony Scott movie, the second you like sit down and think about it, it's like the most cynical movie. Yeah, they're deeply sad. Ever made. I think about him a lot as like the nightmare like flip of Michael Mann. Because mm-hmm. Michael Mann's movies are much more grotesque and ugly and nihilistic on their face, but there's like that beating heart of the romantic behind yeah. him. Whereas Tony Scott like doesn't even believe in a world to dream about. He's just 
everything is just ugly and base and mm-hmm. grotesque and he's just putting in like an ironic smile on it yes because this movie ostensibly what? I, I just i don't know i i really haven't had any interest or deep down fondness of tony scott like again i, I vaguely remember deja vu i have seen taking have you Pel- seen unstoppable i've have seen unstoppable that's a movie with some juice to it it's got a little bit of juice to it. Yeah, I, I I don't disagree. Like Unstoppable was a movie where my dad just randomly one day was like, "There's this new train movie I want to go." See. <laughs> Brought my whole family to go see Unstoppable. I mean, I will say like it. Tony Scott, just based on what I can remember, which is very vague, so you know you can people can disagree with me on this, but it, it feels very Clint Clint Eastwood directorial esque, like a Clint Eastwood directed movie. Uh, I draw attention to. Well, there's another taking of train movie uh, that Clint Eastwood did that wasn't the, very good. The fifteen seventeen. The fifteen seventeen. No one has seen. You cannot prove to me that that's right. a movie right. that exists. Right. No. But then there's also the um, what was the Atlanta bomber movie? Like the Richard, Richard Jewell. Richard Jewell. I felt I had. I you know thinking about Unstoppable and watching Richard Jewell, I got very similar like heroic actions and movies about simple Americans in extraordinary circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. Ordinary people in extraordinary yeah. circumstances. Yeah, and I feel like that that has Clint Eastwood's name all over it for a plethora of reasons. Oh. Yeah, no, I actually, I actually think the late period Clint thing isn't that off the mark. And I, I know a lot of people make the, the argument for Clint that I make for Tony. Um my my difference is that I watch something like Richard Jewell and I watch something like Sully and I'm like, this is like forty percent of the way to there. what it needs to be. Yeah, like there's a version of Richard Jewell that I know people have argued for Richard Jewell being that it's this like deeply cynical movie about how evil the police are. And that's there in Richard Jewell. Mm. You know, American Sniper is like flirting a little with being like the an anti-imperialist movie about yeah, how yeah. soldiers are serial killers. Yeah. But those are like hints that I feel like Clint is too ultimately lazy and jingoistic to mm-hmm. actually care about. Because yeah. he is lazy. Clint Eastwood is lazy. That's that, his whole reputation. That is he's a one he's a one take champ. Eight uh, hour days. Yeah, whereas Tony Tony to me is like if Tony had made Richard Jewell, which fucking hell. Um, <laughs> if Tony makes Richard Jewell, it's that movie. If if Tony makes American Sniper, it is that movie. And I mm. feel like Clint and I also feel like Ridley are both really in these late phases, like trying to move into the territory of narratives that Tony Scott was working in. Um, but they they just don't have the juice. They're not real artists. They don't have the panache. Yeah. Wow. They're not. They, they don't have the black hearts of Tony Scott. Wow. <laughs> um, Stuart looks like he was just shelled. <laughs> I'm like, well, it's like, you know, Mary Grace came in for Look Who's Talking, and that was a great episode, but we had that it's one moment. Episode. We had that one moment with the Scientology bit, and that shook me a lot. Yeah. But, Cole, I feel like every five minutes you're bringing out some sort of bit that's just like the fuck it's shaking you to it's your shaking core me to the core we're already we're only 15 minutes of this mm. podcast i feel like i've been on here for an hour already yeah. just the thing fill. the thing that unlocked tony for me and this is what i always try to tell people is days of thunder which is a movie i think is great mm. uh, i know a lot of people don't like is kind of on its face a very straightforward you know sports movie you know 
asshole learns to play nice and and play for the game not for money with cars but like almost at the very beginning of that movie during the opening credits there's a quick three shot sequence because the opening credits are people like tailgating outside Mm -hmm. a nascar race Mm -hmm. and there's a quick three shot sequence of the american flag the confederate flag and a coca-cola flag Mm -hmm. and to me that's tony scott it's like i'm going to make a like you know heart in your throat you know inspirational sports movie but i'm going to thread it with this idea of like america racism and commerce are entirely intertwined and that it's this rot that is just the foundation on top of which tom cruise is driving is an inherently corrupt evil thing. <laughs> i'm sorry Stuart. i mean like i i can't disagree with you cole the thing is cole be- is absolutely correct I, <laughs> I can't disagree with any of this because of my lack of knowledge and insight into tony scott which you're 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 making a really good case for me to like do a directorial study on him. Um, no, I think one made of the, the best Tarantino movie, True Romance, True Romance, baby. And one of the the things about Tony Scott that may, I find very interesting is the movie stars he chooses to work with. Oh my god, yes! Like the fact that he has a Tom Cruise phase. Mm-hmm. He eventually segues into a late stage Denzel phase. He works with Denzel for ten years, wow. roughly. He works, not only does he have a Tom Cruise phase, but he's really the only guy who makes action movies with Tom Cruise. Yeah. Pre in the 20th century. Yes. It's really the, the, the Tom Cruise action movies in the 20th century are really just, I'm sure I'm forgetting something, but Days of Thunder, Top Gun, and The First Mission. Yes. Because the rest um, of them he's doing But he does that. And... He, he works with, you know, Denzel, obviously, all this stuff. And he's also seeding in the Denzel stuff. He's like, trying to make other stars with like Chris Pine mm-hmm. in Unstoppable. Um, I've already said, I will say my piece further about what I think the relationship between Denzel and Travolta and this is uh, he tries to make Kira Knightley an action star, uh, which is one of the great what ifs in Hollywood history. I mm-hmm. think if people had seen and appreciated Domino, he's the only person brave enough to put Robert Redford and Brad Pitt in a movie together um, he made a sequel to the conversation as a Will Smith vehicle, mm. as like a straight down the line, like let me make Will Smith a kick-ass action star vehicle. He he uses Gene Hackman's juice to try to make Will Smith pop more, and it works. Mm. I I think I just need to take my headphones off and to just like step, walk into the ocean step away from the table. <laughs> I think I I don't I don't know what I could contribute to this episode anymore. No, no, no you're uh, staying here and you're learning. Let's talk about the movie. No. Oh, well, well Jeff, you wanted to say something about the stars. I think. Yeah. Sorry, I cut so, you off. Oh no, it's all good. Uh, I was segueing into you. Um, so the thing about that I find it like as you were saying, he's the guy who does the Tom Cruise action vehicles during the '80s and the '90s period, and the fact that he's basically when it comes to Denzel, he's as far as I can remember the only guy really doing genre vehicles with Denzel around this time. I feel like there's something I'm forgetting because obviously training day, this is all mm-hmm. in like the shadow of training day. Because like right after, because um, there's training day. And then after that, I'm looking at it right now. He does stuff that's like genre adjacent, um, you know, like American gangster inside man, whatnot. But aside from the Tony Scott, uh, films. The only other genre thing he does in that time is the Book of Eli. Mm. 
but because yeah, he doesn't do two guns until Tony's dead. Yeah, because it's he does after training day. It's John Q, Antoine Fisher, Out of Time, Manchur- well, Out of Time, Out of Time is a genre film. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunately not very good. Tragic. Um, I mean, I'm looking at the but that's right him now. reuniting with Carl Franklin, who did Devil in a Blue Dress mm-hmm. with it's, Denzel. Is it a? It's not a sequel. Okay, no. Uh, but it's, he pretty much like. There's like a ten year period where he's pretty much just doing Tony Scott genre films and um the occasional like Spike Lee or Ridley Scott film. Yeah. Well, but also like Inside Man is I mean, I'm not trying to like take this away at all from mm. Spike. Inside Man is very much a Spike Lee film. But Inside Man is kind of like Spike Lee doing a Tony Scott movie in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. It's a very high octane and tense and built around movie stars in a way that like a lot of Spike Lee movies aren't if they aren't mm. Denzel. Yeah. Um, like this movie feels a lot. Pelham, I mean, feels a lot like Tony responding to uh, Inside Man and the idea of Denzel as, you know, put upon hostage negotiator yeah. who's over his head. That's a, that's actually. <laughs> I, I, I heard. Just, a... No, keep going. No, keep going. <laughs> Yes. I. Uh, how does Travolta fit into this fray, though? That's where that's that's where my yeah. long segue was heading. To. Sorry, sorry, sorry. No, this is good. This is the juice. Because I, I will say, um, I, I, I vastly care about Tony Scott and Denzel Washington yes. far more than I care about John Travolta. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. Jeff. No, it, it's fine. It's fine. You can be wrong about some things. Uh, <laughs> I think you've mostly been right, but I think you can be wrong about you. You're allowed to be wrong about uh about that. But no. It's the interesting thing to me, aside from Denzel, is the way this is simultaneously a reinvention of Travolta that kind of pushes him into this third era that we started today, Mm -hmm. which, sidebar for the listener at home, uh, you may have noticed new theme music this episode. Uh, We just listened to our retrospective. This is officially the beginning of the Travolta exploitation era. Yeah. Um, However, we have said very much we uh, regret making it so (laughs) the beginning of this. You yeah, I'm, I've actually I've been wanting to ask you why this and not like from Paris with love yes. is the transition. So back at the very beginning, we kind of made the transition points and we got to the point too late where we realized this was the wrong spot to put it. Um, but we'd already recorded episodes coming out after this and we yeah, fair enough. We kind of done all the work already. Uh, so we just kind of had to stick with it. But. I think this and the film we talk about next week that we recorded like seven years ago, Old Dogs, are the real ending of the A-list era. But I think they're transition films. They are transition films. And I think we said this in our um, recap era episode that Old Dogs particularly is very transitional because it's the beginning. It's the end of his Disney deal. Old Dogs is what kills his Mm. Disney kills future John Travolta vehicles after Old Dogs flops. But also... And I had this thought earlier today that I wish I had thought of when we did the Hairspray episode. But Hairspray, you know, you said this very clearly, Jeff, that like Travolta's performance is Ed Turnblad and Hairspray is good. Mm-hmm. It's a good performance. And Hairspray it's is not a, a bad... very good performance. And Hairspray is not a bad movie. It's actually a pretty good yeah. movie, um, depending on, you know, it fits a certain type of yeah. audience. But in all fairness, I think with that type of audience, it really resonates with them to this yeah. day. To this day, like people will, who liked that movie back then still like it now. Yeah. Because it's a masterpiece, yes. Good movie. Hairspray is Travolta's second blowout. Yeah. Well, 
third, if we count Battlefield Earth. Well, no. Yes. No. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. Battlefield Earth is not underrated in any fashion, shape, or form. It is correctly rated as being terrible. <laughs> well, what if it was pretty good? No, I'm kidding. What do you What do you mean by second blowout? So, because I'm because thinking blowout you, was the you film. You said blowout as like, well, it flopped, and if it hadn't flopped, everything is different. Oh, hear, hear, hear me out on this because yeah, yeah you're right in saying that. But blowout came out. It it came out for the wrong audience. Yeah, and that's can't. what killed it. It's because blowout came out after the darkness of the 70s yeah during the beginning of the bright-eyed america's the best reagan era and people didn't like that the movie ended in a sad way yeah. and that's what and people who watched it didn't like it didn't go seek it seek it see it a second time and they spread the word that this is a movie you may want to avoid because it's dark and depressing yes and that's what killed it and that's what killed John Travolta's career in the 80s. Well, now, fast what forward. Killed, well, what killed his career is that made him scared. And then he made bad choices right after that killed his career. Yes. And so you had thrown that, out. I think it was you, Jeff. It might have been used to it. I'm sorry. But in, I think in the blood episode, you said something about like, what if he had taken supporting roles? Yes. After yeah. blowout, his career is completely different. Yes. And I think about that a lot. Yeah. But, but to finish my point. But fast forward to Hairspray. This is coming out in just before Obama gets elected, not even taken office. This is before the 2008 election. This is not 2007. So we're like well deep into, you know, the two-term Bush era America. Yeah. And here's the thing, because uh, the LGBTQ community, which um, for awful as it is, has been like, I feel like in the 2000s, like the fight, there'd always been a fight like earlier than that, like in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. But I feel like it really got its footing in the early 2000s up until the Supreme Court ruled, you know, same sex marriage to be completely constitutional in all the 50 states in 2013. And in 2007, in the early 2000s to mid 2000s, just right around the 2010 era, there was like the backlash behind it. Yeah. This is where we get like the whole thing with like the post Civil War statues that get built up as black people try to fight for the civil rights that people yeah. think no it's like we're gonna build these civil war statues to remind you guys who's on top yeah fast forward to 2007 and we can all agree on this right we, we, we watch wild hogs and like just, people weren't as uh they didn't care as much of making a point about homophobia yeah. in the 90s 80s 70s and 60s i mean yeah there were some films that were like oh he's gay he should go to prison or be medicated or whatever but it wasn't so much in the early 2000s it was gay jokes and gay comedies jokes and comedies and it was all about that like bashing and bashing about like oh my god he's gay this is so weird like again travolta's gonna do at least two of those he's probably done more but like wild dogs old dogs all movies that are about like ha 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 he's gay movies yeah and hairspray came out right in the fucking center of that mm -hmm. now i feel like if that movie came out four years ago 2016 well, 2017 what would it have worked the, i mean there's a lot of things here but like would it have worked exactly as well maybe maybe not but would it have had the same amount of homophobia backlash that it got back when it actually originally came out? I don't think so. And I don't think it would have caused such a major backlash for Travolta to not be taken seriously, which we established. Yes. And that's why I think Hairspray is Travolta's second blowout. I mean, 
I think you're maybe giving it a little too little credit for people taking that seriously. He came pretty close to an Oscar nomination for he, that. He came. Here's the thing. I'm. It was probably seven or eight. Yeah. So the problem was with Hairspray is not the Academy version of it. It's in a general consciousness. And we both talked about this with yeah. our own parents right after that movie came out. The general like if you mention John Travolta to um, he's a joke. He's a joke. Yeah, fair. He, fair, he, fair. he played a woman in that movie, and, and I don't think the same would have been true if it, if this movie came out four years yeah, ago, yeah, or even two years after. It's yeah, a, yeah, because two years after that's a huge difference. If it came out, after, in, he if probably it came out in twenty eleven, he would have been called brave on every news outlet. Yeah. And every news outlet would have been saying, "Look at John Travolta, the guy who's been the heartthrob, the charismatic guy who's putting himself into this very vulnerable yeah. state." But like so, being a very large I, woman, and I very much don't think it's a like. There's no. There's a very clear correlation with John Travolta General becoming a joke in popular culture right around the time Hairspray comes out. Yeah, I agree. He, kind of, he gets out of joke territory in the '90s. Yeah, mm-hmm. he starts sliding back into it with Battlefield Earth, but he's still doing like things that people are like. Oh yeah, John Travolta. He's whatever. It's not until Hairspray that like he fully becomes a joke again. Yeah. And then this movie is reeling it back. Is Tony Scott, in a sense, trying to reinvent Travolta mm-hmm. again? But I think the way he does it inadvertently sets Travolta up for his 2010s run. All of this to say, I I don't think we should be super hard on ourselves for making this the turning point into the th- third era because I do think with all of those elements combined with hairspray. Mm-hmm with Bolt being his last ever truly A-list movie. It's the first it's the last time he gets top billing in a successful movie. Yeah. For a I, while. I do think taking a Pelham, you know, it as I mean Cole's going to make the case it's gonna, it's the best movie ever made, but like I I need to be right about it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I do think it deserves some of the I don't want to even say bad credit or negative credit, but for being that like transitionary moment for what Travolta is going to do in the future. I think the only thing I would say, because if I'm right, it's Pelham, Old Dogs, Paris, right? Yes. See, to me, Paris is the start of the next era. And I think the reason is, is that Pelham and Old Dogs are the last attempts, even if they're both flops. Mm -hmm. They're the last attempts of Travolta being a leading man in a pictures. Yes. And because there's a huge difference between being the second lead in taking a poem one, two, three, coming out in the middle of the summer, playing second fiddle to Denzel Washington. Yeah. And top lining, basically shifting into the Liam Neeson mode Mm -hmm. of top lining, a smaller winter action movie. And you just said, I feel like once you're in the Liam Neeson mode, no disrespect to Liam Neeson, but once you've hit, that phase of like i'm going to star in a 10 million dollar february programmer you're never getting back to a list status ever again and but you and you just said it though that like tony and you just said it as well jeff that like tony scott's trying to reinvent travolta Mm. and i think about the movie taken with liam neeson that on paper that movie sounds like it's going to be a joke 
Liam Neeson, who at the time, 2000, what year did that come out? 2006. 2008. 2008? I thought 2008, I think, right? I think you're right. Well, I think I'm Taken Pelham came out 2008. Nine. Nine? Nine. Fucking hell. How, how are you even on this podcast? So, but Liam Neeson at the time is already well into like his 50s, right? 60s. 60s? <laughs> he? No, he's younger. He's in his 50s. He's in his He's fi- about to turn 70. Right now, with Blacklight, the best, with the Blacklight, best movie of the they're, year. They're gonna need more men. <laughs> they're gonna need more men. He has to take but, down the entire federal bureau so, of investigation. Like, and I, I felt like taking Taken, um, on paper looks like you're gonna cast Liam Neeson, who, like, in his fifties, is gonna be like this rough, gritty action star. Now, I will say the trailer made it look pretty cool. That the the Taken trailer is actually pretty decent. But on paper, just like the poster and just like if someone gave you the elevator pitch of Taken, it's like, I don't want to see it. 50-year-old Liam Neeson kick bad bad guy's ass in Paris. And You don't? I do. I mean, you we do now because <laughs> we saw Taken and we saw how amazing that is. Yeah. Okay. So, Taken's barely a but what, what My point so, is I'm trying to get to, to tie it all up, is because I think if what happened to Liam Neeson in Taken, which is like, oh shit, yeah, this guy can do be a badass in badass movies, and you know, it extended his life a few years. Now, granted, I do agree though, uh, Cole, that like Liam Neeson has gone down to that level of February programmers, but I do think Taken like boosted him at least an extra a well, couple the, years. The, the distinction with Neeson is that because Taken is a February program. Yeah, but it's a it, good it February program. The February programmer too that all other February programmers want to be. The thing is that Leeson was not a leading Neeson was not a leading man before he made Take It. He was like a no. respected thespian. He wasn't and, a movie star. Like he would do like he like prior to that like Schindler's List, The Phantom Menace, all those movies. Like he may be top build, like he may be the lead, but it's like is he the main? Is he like the He's movie not star anchoring the lead that movie of a summer blockbuster? Yeah. You know, Travolta is, even if he wants to, and if you look at the other people who have followed the Neeson route, your Travolta's, your Cusack's, your uh, Willis's being, I think, the big one, even though he's doing it in really bare bones stuff. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of these people who are moving into your Charlize Theron's, um, a lot of these people who are moving into this like low to mid budget, like clean action movie territory, they're once movie stars who are trying to keep their career afloat. Mm. And I think there's a distinction between them and a Neeson who's only getting higher profile that unless you're Keanu Reeves, once you make a movie like From Paris with Love, is that what it's called? Yes, it is From Paris Paris with Love. From Paris with Love. From Paris with Love. Once you make a movie like From Paris with Love, unless you're Keanu Reeves, you're never opening a summer blockbuster again, no matter who you used to be. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that's why I I think From Paris to Love is the actual beginning of this era. We just uh I we just already committed. And that's I, fine. We just spent like twenty minutes talking about which, which is what I was about which to is say. Exactly what I want the show to be. We are thirty five minutes into this podcast. I want this podcast. We have not started talking about the plot yet. <laughs> that that's what I that's what I wanted. That's from the very beginning. That's what I wanted this podcast to be. Is four hour episodes where we barely talk about the movie. No. Um, but I think it but, is. But I think it's a. It is like an important stage of a lot of people's careers because very few people have managed to keep, you know, a movie star career going for multiple decades. Yeah, it's... and Travolta is a weird case, and I know you've talked about this because he has the 
the dip and then the comeback. Mm-hmm. And he kind of keeps that comeback writing for so long, but like at some point you can't headline an action movie yeah. this anymore. Is... Like the only very few people have managed to keep like a 40 year plus run, which is really what we're almost talking about. Yeah. 30, I guess at this point for him, it's like Tom Cruise and um, Leo, maybe not even Leo. I'm blanking on her name. Oh my God. Hold on. Uh, keep talking. Okay. But, Joan Crawford. Joan, Joan Crawford's Crawford. the other one. Okay. Cruz and Crawford can keep it going. Uh, everyone else, you you do hit a point where you kind of look silly being the bad guy in an action movie, mm-hmm. which is what I think this movie's kind of about. Yeah. Okay. Should we just should we dive into the into the movie itself? I think it's time to. You want to dive in? Let's get into the movie itself. Okay. The Taking of Pelham, one, two. Three. There we go. That's what I, that's what I wanted. Alright. You got what you wanted. I got what I wanted. Now I can hit stop record, <laughs> no. right? Uh, <laughs> if I if I can just cut in here for a second yes. because this is just a thing me and Jeff talk about a lot. Um I do own this movie on Blu-ray. He does. Uh it is the initially uh issued Blu-ray from when this movie just properly came out. Uh Jeff, just so you know, the trailers on this Blu-ray are District Nine and Ron Howard's Angels and Demons. <laughs> Very good. Very good. <laughs> wow. Wow, I'm so old. Just <laughs> <laughs> and Demons. The sequel to Have you guys seen those movies? Yes. Absolutely not. I've seen both of those <laughs> movies. Seen both? I've seen Have you di- seen the third? There's three <laughs> There's of them. Three. Oh, I didn't know In, there was three. They made Inferno ten years after Angels and Demons. I did not see Eleven. Inferno. Eleven. <laughs> Tom, Tom Hanks in that movie. It's so funny how like significantly different he looks. Still like running down those like doing the action scenes. I mean, Angels Inferno and Demons came out the same year as Sully. Angels and Demons is the one where Ewan McGregor is a Play, priest yeah, and he lifts up a nuke up into a helicopter, jumps off of it, and <laughs> skydives back to Vatican yes. City, and then gets elected the Pope, and then found out that he killed the former Pope. <laughs> He does put a nuke in a helicopter and then skydive down, and then the the papal smoke rises, and they're like, "Who's the pope?" Then they find out he murdered the old, former yeah, pope, the f- previous pope. Yeah, is it John Paul? Is it Benedict? <laughs> we'll never know. All right, I, so the movie it remem- would have been Francis. No, two thousand nine would have been Benedict. I remember very specifically my parents having the Da Vinci Code copy, but they had the special definitive edition book, where like every time Robert Langdon mentioned a piece of artwork, there would be like a gloss page with a picture of the artwork. <laughs> oh my god. I think about that a lot. All right, let's start let's talk okay. about this Gandolfini movie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So this is what the the sixth Gandolfini we've covered on this show? Probably. Is it? We have covered I believe six Gandolfinis. Get Shorty. Even prior to I'm bringing it up. Even prior to Get Civil Shorty. Civil Action. No, he's in Okay. So he is in Get- a civil action is also not a movie that you can convince me exists. I'm just gonna bring up James Gandolfini. I think I think a civil action might surprise you, Cole. It surprised it's good, me. It's a good movie. I, it might be good if it was real. <laughs> it's just not a real movie. Okay, it's so, a fake poster that someone walks by in a real movie. Uh, I'm gonna grab something from my office in just a second here. <laughs> but um, so Gandolfini has done Get Shorty. She's so yeah. lovely. 
Never seen. A Civil Action, uh, Lonely Hearts, Taking of Pelham. So five total. He's so, not going to be in anything else, is he? He is not. This is this okay. is our last is Gandolfini on this show, unfortunately. Because he's only got three or four more movies after this, I think. He has he has a good number. Really? What I'm looking. He's, Can you give him to me. Give him he to me. He passes okay. away in 2013. 2013. Enough said. It's his last movie. I so think. The drop. The drop. <laughs> Tom Hardy. Wow. Uh... Remember the drop? <laughs> that was supposed to be a big deal. I remember the big deal was Gandolfini's going to get a, a posthumous Oscar for the drop. Isn't the drop like an original, like? Michael Connolly script or something. It is. I'm bringing it up right now. It's or what's his name? The guy who wrote Gone Baby Gone. I think the drop is an original script. It's written by, by the novelist who wrote Gone Baby Gone it, and Live by Night. It is absolutely Ripper. an original. It's based on his 2009 short story. Okay. But what's his the, name? Not De- Michael Connolly. Connolly's Bosch. Dennis Lehane. Yes. So after this, um, Gandolfini has Where the Wild Things Are. Welcome, Maybe his best performance. Welcome to the Rileys. Mint Julep, Down the Shore, Violet and Daisy, Killing Them I've Softly. I've seen Violet and Daisy. Not Fade Away, Zero Dark Thirty, The Incredible Burt Wonderstone, and then Enough Said the Drop, our posthumous. Well, I've seen like half of those. There's... I've seen The Incredible Burt Wonderstone. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've seen Violet and Daisy. Incredible. Who's it? Oh, that's a Steve. Car- oh, that's a Steve a... Carell, Jim Carrey, magician. Oh, God, magician. I forgot about this. All right. All right. We got to get into the movie, guys. Look at this poster for the Incredible Burt Wonderstone. Great. Uh, that's great. So the really movie starts with a montage really of <laughs> New York City. One, two, three. We are getting into we're in New York. <laughs> we start out. No, we don't, we don't start out in New York. We start out in a small aspect ratio of New York. <laughs> that then it starts pulsing. And uh, then it's not just pulsing. It's growing it's, like a train. It's it's growing like what it looks like when you're in a train depot pulling out. That's what it's doing. <laughs> Have you ever seen the beginning of um, James Gray's The Yards? It's like the exact same shot except with just the aspect ratio growing. <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying? Yes. That's what it is. It's like you're coming out of a tunnel and it's getting big. Yeah. And so it grows out, and then it just pops out, and then... We're I in New York. We're in New York. We're in New York! <laughs> well, we're above New York, technically. Yeah. We're in a helicopter! The greatest fucking city in the world. Greatest fucking city my in the world. My New York city. number one. Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. So the aspect ratio changes. And then I I wrote... Oh, okay. I wrote the words handlebars, and I was like, why did I write that? And then I remember... One of the first shots after we like we're cutting around New York and we get the you know a film by Tony Scott et cetera et cetera, is we're just on a street corner, and in super fast John Travolta walks up the camera and then slow mo walks past and we get introduced to the look in this movie. As you're giving me that look like I should go straight to the hair ranking. I'm giving you that look. I think so. All right. I think it's time. All right, Cole, should I have my hand near that thing for this potentially? Maybe. Cue cue, <laughs> cue the hair ranking music. Now,
welcome to the hair ranking. Um, I'm going to make this really quick. Uh, I already put it somewhere. Oh, God. Check the hair ranking music and tell the audience where I put it. Oh, you... Oh, like, you You didn't mean that you already put it in here. You already updated the list. <laughs> I already updated the list ahead of time. Where did I put it, Jeff? Okay, I'm trying to find it. Oh. It's going to be towards the bottom. I'm sorry. I'm, it's going to be where? Towards Is the, the list in reverse order? <laughs> nope. Nope. It's towards the bottom. Stole, call, he put it at number 47. Out of? Out of uh, a current 56. He put it at 47. Explain. What's above, Explain above It's below. above moment by moment. Below. Oh, no. It's a below moment by moment. Above Nicolas Cage and Face Off. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good joke. That was a good bit. That was a good bit. Uh, so explain, the, reason, the reason being is because Travolta's hair is short, but it's not like the buzzed cut short we saw in Basic or Lucky Numbers. It's like the short and thinning. Because it's like thinning hair in the front, and it's short. Um, he does have a mustache. Um, he does have a handlebar mustache. But I think it only serves to make him look evil, and it doesn't look sexy of any kind at all. Which I know I've said on this podcast that I don't judge it based purely on looks. I judge it based on like storytelling narrative. <laughs> <laughs> For the audience at home, while Cole is on Zoom, we have our video feed open, and do we should we play the should we? No, I mean no. I I haven't. You said you finish your thought. Finish yeah. Finish saying what you're saying, Stuart. So you're on the hot seat. I'm on the hot seat. (laughs) I'm just seeing Cole's reaction on Zoom. It makes me frightened. (laughs) (laughs) So I, 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 you know, I think it does a good job of like showing who he is as a character. I agree with that. But in terms of the work that went into it, I don't necessarily think it beats any of the ones above it. Like moment by moment, it's below moment by moment and say what you will, but at least it's longer to mm-hmm. to hair. Like it's kind of okay. And it fits his like young aesthetic look. Yeah. And then what's above moment by moment, just oh, to see above where we're moment at. by moment is right above moment by moment is his look in the finale of swordfish. Which, <laughs> which is because he changes his hair halfway which, through the movie. Which is there a single a choice. Travolta fit that conveys character more than, than his look movie. in this movie? Oh, one hundred percent. Truly. Oh, one hundred percent. Name one. Swordfish. Ridiculous. Pulpic. No one can tell me what he looks like in Swordfish. Uh, I've seen Swordfish. Long hair. What does goatee? that say about this character? Everything you need to know <laughs> that he's maniacal about John and crazy. Travolta's character in this movie <laughs> that he's batshit is in. Cr- that slowed down shot that Jeff was talking to you about where you see the hairstyle. I, I mean, I'm... it's all in the hair. Cause he's got the, re- I have to object. I have to object. Listen, I, I'm going to object too. I, I, I'm gonna object because <laughs> no, listen, no, cause here's the thing. This is the first time I think Travolta's let his hair look bad in a movie, which is the point. Cause e- every time we've talked about, like he's had bad hair in a movie but it's not like he's intentionally let it look bad. Like he thought the experts was a good idea at the time. Yeah, and it wasn't a good idea. But this is intentionally bad looking. It's receded. He's got like a prison hat right here, like below the handlebar. Yeah, I, I hear you guys all out, and I'm not saying that all doesn't work for me. But I, I still hold like you know, if I have to balance the equation out in terms of narrative importance versus looks. 
you know, it's really far down on the looks chain and it's somewhat in the happy medium of the narrative chain. And therefore, I think that's where it deserves placement. Is that placement. in the happy medium of the narrative chain? It's I think so. It's of the narrative I chain. I think there's a lot better movies that showcase what his character is supposed to be narratively. I'll give you Phenomenon with his, like, you know, five o'clock shadow and his wrinkled hair towards the end of the movie and then the haircut scene. I'll give Where's you... Where's Phenomenon? Let me find out where Phenomenon is. Where's Phenomenon? Phenomenon's number 24. <laughs> Phenomenon's number 24. And I think you've just made the argument it has to be at least number 25. It probably should be in the top five. All right, let I'm me throw that out let, there. Let, let me, let me, the because, let me because see. Because again, let me see the list. Yeah, this is definitely a look. Let that... me see the list. John Travolta okay. walks into this movie, and what is your immediate reaction to John Travolta in this movie? He looks like a New York scumbag. <laughs> yeah. He looks like an idiot. Yeah. He looks like an idiot. What is he doesn't look tough? He looks weird. What's the reveal of John Travolta's character? That he's a New York banker trying to make himself look like a, like a everything thug. you need to know. Sorry, about I don't John get Travolta any of that when I see movie. John Travolta in the first thing. Like the, he looks like a he looks like a bad impression of a thug. Yeah, every single thing you need to know about what this guy's going to do for the rest of the movie is conveyed in that first shot through the hair. That's the thing. The tattoo is an accoutrement. You could lose the tat and you still got it. It's all in the hair. But Austin Powers and Goldmember, when he has the blonde wig and the, you know. And this is stuff. not a counter argument. And stuff on his face. This is not, not a, a counter, counter argument. argument. I mean, I've said this before, though. It's not purely based on the narrative importance of it. It's based on both narrative and looks. And so I. And it's one of his most iconic looks. I don't agree. I think in the movie we're going to talk about uh, in two weeks, the From Paris with Love, people remember him more for being bald than anything else. So if we're talking about like what's he's really known for, I'm, I'm sorry, but I have like 15 movies that are all in the middle of this list of the same fucking hair he wore in the 90s, and then he's bald. And those What's are the two hairstyles. The he's... Me? So it basically goes from... What's number one? Number one is Staying Alive. Hey Jeff, can you do me a favor? Yes. Can you can you copy that list, open it in another document, put Pelham at number one, and then just keep your own list? <laughs> no. Yes, I can do that out. right no. now. I'm, doing, I'm making sheet number two. <laughs> it's not gonna be valid because I right. came up with this hair ranking All from right. the very beginning. So here's what's happening. There's a sheet that says Stewart's list. And then there's a second one called correct list. No. <laughs> yeah. Shut the fuck well, up. Well, let's take a you vote. You can't hijack my list. I made this list. It's mine. Let's take a vote. And Who I own Stuart's it. list is canon? Raise your hand no. if Stuart's list is canon. Yeah, all of us. Listen. Raise all... your hand if, if the correct list is canon. No, shut the fuck up. I can't be outvoted on this podcast that I made. I control the buttons, Jeff. I control the dials. I can make anything happen. And look, I understand, I understand the thought that this guy, you have this vision of him in your head, the first thing you thing you see him as. I simply don't, first off, don't feel that strongly about how I feel about him when I first see him on screen. Because I see him on screen, the first thing I think of is like, oh, he could be like next con or something like that. Or he could be like, I don't know any other butch guy like i don't i don't see all of those layers that you're pointing out i think that's a little bit of a reach personally if i may add <laughs> uh and then i so then i have to go to like you know where he progresses in the story and how his hair correlates with that 
And yeah, sure, it like helps a little bit that, oh, it turns out he's a bad guy holding hostages and it helps that he has like short, thinning hair with a handlebar mustache. Like, I get that. But it doesn't really do anything else for me. And I don't it's, think it, looks-wise it doesn't do anything for me. Like, it doesn't make him any more menacing. It doesn't make him any less menacing. It's just there. It makes there. Him so much less menacing. No, I don't yeah. think it does. I think he looks that, so gooby. That, I mean, he looks so goofy. This so is I was all... watching this movie. No, so I was watching no. this movie. I'm sorry. And I Becca just... rounded the corner right as he, like, walks out. And she just started laughing immediately. And I think that's the perfect, like, reaction to have when you see it's this guy. It's what you're supposed to feel. Yeah. I I don't I think you're giving this way too much credit because than he, what it actually deserves. I do not think that this was put in. We, we've talked about every every good John Travolta performance in some capacity kind of plays to his like natural aloofness. Like he has a general like remove of himself. Like he's generally just seems like a kind of goofy aloof guy. And and the best role performances are usually ones that play with that. There are a few that don't. Listen, that turned out we are good. already would, an hour into this yeah, podcast. And we're I would having a good conversation. Take that a step further, Jeff, and not to say anything that is going to get me in trouble, because there's been a thing about John Travolta that I'm pretty sure you two have consciously never mentioned before. Mm. But all the really good John Travolta performances are explorations of like performed heterosexual swag. Mm. And this guy is that more than like anything yes that this is someone who has like a cartoon image in his head of what the bad guy in a denzel washington movie looks like mm-hmm. and he tries and to he has chosen that. to look like that but he looks lame because he's a 50 something john travolta how old is travolta in this movie in this travolta yeah. would be well, how old is he now I guess. so travolta nowadays 67 he would have been roughly like 55 57 when this when they're filming this, this is all great, well said and done. But I'm still putting John Travolta where I put him in the list. That's okay because you're gonna, you're allowed to be wrong. Uh, yeah. So Cole, what is this exhibit that you brought to the table? Oh, it it's. I mean, can you cut this next bit out? Uh, it, it doesn't matter. You you you. It, it, he it's, avoided it's invalidated it. at this point. I had I had a piece of audio say in which you said that um, importance to the narrative is just as important as how much it looked. And so I was keeping that in my back pocket in case you tried to make the argument. You didn't make. Because <laughs> you tried to say it was just based on the look. Yeah. In in that same piece of and audio, I... you also acknowledged that facial hair counts. So I had both potential counter arguments that I up. thought were completely wow. invalid. Well, I'm glad I did not in your... walk into that one. <laughs> that would have yeah. been amazing. You came close. I came close. You came real close. But I did not walk into it. I acknowledged yeah. that, yes... Yes. And I will always acknowledge that, yes, narrative does matter to the hair ranking. It definitely does. But I, I value the two somewhat equally. Yeah. And I think there are some movies where, like, does he need that amazing hair and staying alive? Not really. I mean, if anything, you could say him being a dancer with long hair actually hinders himself because it's going to get in his face. But, like, I, I still think that, like, the hair, the look, the style... He just looks the best he can ever look in staying alive. We'll never get that back again because of, you know, his age. But I, I will always hold that like that well, hair is just so goddamn like you well, can't resist looking at to, him. To go into that, you know, if we're playing with the idea of every Travolta performance is in some way like a 
a facet of masculinity. He's intentionally playing Stallone in Staying Alive. Yeah. And yeah, I agree. It's the, well, I've said it before. It's the Rambo hair. Yeah, it's the Rambo hair, and he's and he's not. He's just playing Stallone in that movie, to the extent oh that there's God, that one it part. Is the Rambo hair. There's that part where he bumps into Stallone on the street after being denied for like three jobs, and Stallone's like, "Yeah, it's a tough job," isn't it? and then they keep going. Yeah. So th- this is all. Do like... we want to do the out of hair ranking? Music? Yeah. Let's. <laughs> we don't have it out of hair ranking music. We do just we not? Kind of, I, I've said this before. There's only the intro. And then we just kind of segue There was out some of, point where we had an out of hair ranking music. I'm too lazy. There's like some episode where Listen, that Listen, when, I, that when I have to put all I these sound Jeff's effects right. in post, I am the laziest when it comes to that. And so I only yeah. do an intro. So. Okay. 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 Now back to the movie where we're okay. in the fucking one minute mark. And we're <laughs> an hour. Has just walked <laughs> past the screen. Uh, to 99 Problems. <laughs> yes. Which, okay, that's which I think is... A great piece of music because um, it's Jay Z's retirement song. Mm-hmm. It's 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 Jay Z's transition point into mogul, right? That like the flexing Jay Z is doing on that song, of like running drugs, getting hassled by cops, is completely divorced from the actual life of the man rapping that yeah. song, which is the exact same relationship John Travolta has. To being a gun-toting badass. Yeah, it's it's he's playing dress up. Mm-hmm. He is. Yeah, it's also an incredible opening montage. Yes, so of the the time lapse, hyper sped up photography of people making their way through the New York City streets, uh, like slamming to a halt when the movie star enters the picture. Yes, really. Like right away, you. And I think Cole, in your letter box review, the film you pointed out, like the right away, this movie just is like there's there's nothing that looks like this anymore. Remember when people had the confidence to just crush blacks in a mm-hmm. movie? Just let a thing like as hyper. This is a specific type of hyper stylization that very few directors are working with anymore, and very few were working with at the time. It was you know your Tony Scotts or Michael Bay's. Uh, guys who are your Michael Manns, your Michael Manns, who would work in this specific style, this specific color palette, the specific like movement, and most importantly, this specific style of editing. Because this thing is like, but it all feels in place. For the listener home, I was smacking my hand together for like cuts, but everything has. Jeff, take is your hand out place. of your pants right now, please. Okay. Oh God. <laughs> um. <laughs> And back up against the wall. Until we get a video content, <laughs> no way to prove. Mm. Okay. Anyway, so, so yeah, we then that's when we get to Denzel in the control room. So I had not seen this movie before. Um, I did not really read much into this movie prior to watching it, Clearly which is the context corner was fucking well, yeah, lazy. Which is why it's in the wrong spot, and we uh, started the troll exploitation era too early. But um. Right away, I was just like, all right, John, Denzel, I knew Denzel, I knew Travolta, and then it just starts hitting me with John Turturro, Luis Guzman, James and Gandolfini. And Guzman shows up before his name. Yes. Appears. Like, well before his name, you're like, if it, it's before Denzel shows up, I think. Yeah, because he's he's just wa- yeah. he's walking down to the train platform. Yeah. It's Travolta, Guzman, and the two henchmen. Yeah. One of whom is apparently just a teamster who worked on the movie. Love it. Who Tony Scott thought looked threatening. And I will say, <laughs> as somebody 
Jeff and I, we work on a TV show. We've worked with plenty of Teamsters. I've seen Teamsters <laughs> who could be thugs in movies. Yeah. Like, you, if you want to stock, like, a good, like, tough guy personnel, just go to, like, base camp and just, like... Sorry, are you implying that there's ever been anything shady about the, the Teamsters International Federation Union? of Teamsters? <laughs> Specifically on... I have, I have nothing but love for the Teamsters uh, union's <laughs> role. Yes, they do. Um, and I wish we were in one. And maybe organized crime doesn't really hurt anybody. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, okay. Uh, so, we get Denzel in the control room. Yes, we we get to Denzel after we were introduced to Travolta's crew, and we see the sort of um, you know monotony procedural work that he does every day. Yes, you know, talking to each train, being like, "Hey, just, like, what's the problem?" He's here? the conductor. He's the conductor. But guy. he's literally a conductor, right? Yeah. He's like, like I noticed that like very early on, someone calls him a maestro. Yes. Yeah. Um, he's literally like conducting it like he's conducting a symphony. And he stands in front of this like somewhat circular like screen, semicircle giant, desk. Yeah, yeah. semicircle desk and he's basically just like you go there, you go there. It's like you're saying it's full on conducting. He's yeah. controlling the grid of the city. Mm-hmm. And if Stuart, have you seen the the 74? The original film. No. Okay. Um I don't really want to talk about the original film. Um I love it, but I feel like People talk about this in relation to it too much, but I did want to say, people people do not like this movie. Mm-hmm. The Tony Scott taking a poem one two three, and the main reason people tend to cite about not making this movie is that they don't think it hits the same beats as the original. Yeah, because in the original, Mathau is like the schlubbiest schlub who ever lived. Mm-hmm. Like he's a complete loser. He looks like shit. Um, he's just like some schmuck who happens to get caught up in this. Yeah. And from like the immediate moment we're meeting Denzel, he's a dude working a desk job, but he's like radiating charisma. Yeah. And he's and on not only charisma, but professionalism. Like, mm-hmm. like I said, he's conducting these trains. Yeah. Like they're a symphony. He's the machine. He's the guy that makes the machine work. I mean, it, for it, me, like the energy that I read right away was he's a dad. This is a, just like this is an everyday working Joe who has a family to go home to at the end. Everyday of the day. working Joes don't look like Denzel Washington. Yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah, no. they do. Yeah, they do. Because you notice, like Denzel actually kind of had like a little bit of a belly on him. You notice he wasn't like a fit action superstar like that. He's actually. I, I, I will get to this. I think it's by design that he's sitting for so much of the movie that that the scenes where he gets up and you see the belly are where he's at his weakest mm-hmm. um, until you get to the last third. There's a reason he's kept sitting for so much of it is to emphasize his face in this frame. Yeah. And how radiant his face is and how much of he's just a star. Oh yeah. He's like, a, he's in the zone of his work and like, yeah. and I definitely agree to that for sure that he, he he's, he has like a work mode that and he goes the, into. The Denzel thing in this movie for me is that, like you're saying, the original film, Walter Matthau is basically just a loser. And Denzel's a loser in this in a different way, his character is. Mm-hmm. But this movie is about, it, it fits into that Tony Scott, Michael Mann thing about guys who are good at their jobs and how they contrast with guys who are not good at their jobs. And the guys who take their jobs for granted and guys who try and do jobs that they're not prepared for. And that, you know, he's keeps saying throughout the movie, he's a guy who started at the bottom. He started as a, 
I, motor man. Motor man, that's the word. They keep saying he's a motor man to start, and he worked his way up the chain to become the... Uh, like the the chief. Yeah, the chief. Dispatcher. Yeah, he's not even a working stiff anymore. He's yeah. an executive. Yes. Like, like this is another thing where you're supposed to... You, you clock the truth of the character kind and there's of immediately. E- there's even a quick dialogue bit at the beginning where he says, yeah, I'm I'm sh- not so far away from being inside the room. And he, it yeah. cuts to an angle of, like, the chief executive yeah. dispatcher or whatever. So yeah, like that 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 makes its point very clearly in, mm. in the movie. So. That that he's a guy who has recently been humbled, but he's still bringing that professionalism from above down below. Yeah, and he's got all eyes on him, mm-hmm. not in a good way either. Yeah, like he he put in his time, he put in his hours, and he's proven himself. But he's made one slip up, and he he's got the eyes on him. Yeah, like people are looking at him very closely. Mm-hmm. Um, which I got that parallel when with Travolta. Um, Ryder was trying to make yeah. with Walter. So, uh, cool. The first, the next thing I can remember is they, they, they get on the train. Yeah, the, the bad guys. The they, the hijacking happens very early in the movie. Yeah, because it's basically just like you know you're introduced to Denzel, and then we cut back to the train. There's a little bit of business. They're getting with, on. They're the all four gonna... with the four guys moving through, and then Travolta holds up uh mo- like a uh, like one of the conductors. Yeah. Uh, he says the great line where he's like, "Your conductor, well, you're gonna conduct these people off the train." Oh, that's uh, later. Yeah, they, oh, that's that later. That's the that's woman. Later. Yeah, okay. when he shoots somebody already, and it's like, "What's your name?" And it's like, I don't know what her name is, but it's like, "All right, well, Brenda, you're the conductor. So you're gonna conduct all." And that's whole thing. But there's a gu- male conductor at the front of the train that he holds a gun to. Yeah, and he holds it in a way where it's like his arms inside, like the window, so people can't like clearly see he's holding a gun, and he's holding him hostage. Like you're gonna unlock the door so we can get into like. The controller, the con- or the, the the pilots, or yeah, like, we were calling it like a train, like a cockpit, but it's yeah, the cockpit. It's not, but it kind of is. Don't look at me, caboose. <laughs> <laughs> it's the it's the driver's seat, yeah, like the it's the control seat. room, right? Yeah. It's where the motor man. Yeah. yeah. So they 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 get in and they take control of the train. Um, guy who get. Uh, not, right. I want to segue really quick. Not Tudoro. Um, uh, Louis Guzman. Yeah. Segue. So I want to segue really quick. Um, so Cole, you live in New York. I do. How accurate is this film to the actual um, MTA? Is it the MTA there? Yes, it's the MTA. Okay, it's the MTA. How authentic is this? Um, I mean, in what direction are you asking? Like, does does this play with the rules of the real MTA, or is it kind of just like doing its own thing in terms of like the vibe and just like the train lines and whatnot? The train lines are mostly accurate, to okay. my knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they'll do some things where they're switching like, uh, off screen. They're like not explicitly saying something, but like the lineage makes sense. Like they, they completely switch lines. Like to to jump ahead quickly, the, the climax of this movie takes them onto the elevated tracks. Um, that the, the, the train that is hijacked does not go onto the elevated tracks does not go into Brooklyn at all, but Mm -hmm. it could conceivably at a station, switch lines basically okay like all that stuff makes sense um all the stops make sense i don't think they're 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 cheating there um they shoot most of this actually in brooklyn i believe Mm -hmm. uh most of the exteriors so there's this there's a stop in brooklyn called a hoy Shermerhorn, which is kind of near where i live um that has a bunch of decommissioned tunnels yeah it's it's kind of roughly where the transit museum is because the transit museum is in an abandoned subway station um 
so the, because it has a lot of tunnels, anytime really you see something shot in New York where they're like in the tunnels, they're going to shoot it in Brooklyn, Brooklyn because you can do that without having to kill train the train line. lines. Um, in terms of what stops they're at, what tracks they're on, it's pretty accurate. Um, this is like the least attended train car I've ever been in on my life. <laughs> There's is like the seven guys. <laughs> um, especially for Rush the hour. middle of yeah. the afternoon. It's 123. So like Midtown? Yeah. <laughs> no. Absolutely not. There's like, like eight guys. You kind of just gotta train. take that and accept that because mm. it's it's, it's in movie. the title. Like by virtue of this movie being called The Taking of Palm One, Two, Three, which it has to be. The, the train has to run on a specific track, yeah, um, which means it has to run to time. They are like, um, they're basically one stop north of Times Square. When they get taken? When they get taken. Okay. When they park the, when they park the trains, they're basically one stop north of Times Square. Okay. So think about what you think the traffic would be like <laughs> on a train headed into Times Square at like two in the afternoon, even if it is coming from the Bronx. Yeah. No. <laughs> And and especially the yeah. real problem is the 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 subway platforms when they're hanging on the platforms, and there's like no traffic. That's ridiculous. Okay. But that's that's a movie yeah. thing, you know. Like, I've lived in Chicago. You two have lived in Chicago. When when has a CTA platform looked like a CTA platform in Never. terms of the amount of bodies that are present? Never. Never. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. So I just wanted that clarification because I've I've. You know, there's obviously been a lot of movies set in New York that fake the train lines and fake the train platform. And yeah. I was just genuinely curious. About- I, I, no, it's it's actually pretty accurate. Like I said, they just switch. Um, they basically just switch line what line they're going to be on. But that mm-hmm. switch geographically is Makes possible. Sense. It's I, just not stated. I will say just as a form of like pretext and something I can bring to the table is I, I was on a, a shoot last uh, summer of 2021 and we had some scenes that took place on the CTA. Um, both on the train and on the platform and both elements were very had their difficult moments for instance like we had a few separate days where it was like train work and then we had a few some days where it was like on the platform Mm -hmm. Um, for the train work we the audience who doesn't live in Chicago and for Cole like you may not know these but like Jeff and I who know like the stops pretty well we shot on the brown loop that started at Mm -hmm. Washington Library and it took a line that, you know, I mean, the loop, like the loop, yeah. literally, you could sw- do switch the lines in a way where a train could go in a circle yeah. and it just doesn't stop. Now, that's not how the loop really works. I mean, you have the red line that comes in and the red line goes straight through the loop. The brown line, which comes in, it does do a loop, but then the brown line comes back up north and so, vice versa and such. There isn't like a dedicated loop train, to mm. my understanding. Like they all go in separate directions. Yeah. But the way we shot it. Well, the it, brown and the orange run the same pattern. Yeah, the brown and orange direction. like come to the loop, take a loop, and then go yeah. back out. And so what we did is we we basically hijacked a brown line train, but wait, instead of the switcher. Wait, wait. Are no, you saying you you guys were taking a train? The Harold Washington ta- the taking, of 712 the, ta- the, taking of, the taking of Harold Washington Se- 117? <laughs> it's kind of what we did uh but we had like an old decommissioned train and we yeah. simply just like were, went on a track that allowed us to go into a circle yeah. I, I worked uh, on a th- it was four cars i just i know this is so nerdy and like the audience probably doesn't care about this at all but like they the the first ad talked to all the pas the day before about like how we were going to shoot it so like we had four cars the second front car was the hero car then the the front car was going to be grip and electric 
the the second back car was like video village and sound and all that stuff and then the backpack car was uh dit and like all that other stuff and every time they made a stop like the grips would come out of the front car bring in some lights in the other car and you couldn't stop for very long either because the platform was still a working platform so we Mm -hmm. had i'm gonna give this man a shout out by name bill riley <laughs> oh i he if you've ever worked for people in chicago if you've ever worked on a, on a film tv show where you have to use a cta bill riley is almost always the cta representative the railroad everything about the railroad wants railroad to... <laughs> <laughs> bill riley i hope you listen to our podcast okay. he probably doesn't but anyway i, I love the railroad <laughs> we are i am now gonna get to the i'm now gonna be the guy who says we are five minutes into this they have not taken the train yet <laughs> so i will say one of the 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 nice things about new york is that yeah. there's more compared to chicago i mean is there's more underground yes um stations which means you can shoot at night mm-hmm. stuff that's meant to be set in the day so i just i had read this earlier i just did some skimming like i said they shot a lot of the tunnel stuff in brooklyn in those unused tunnels um, they shot the hijacking in the middle of the night when on a, a train line that wasn't running mm-hmm. in Grand Central. Yeah. Um, because some of the trains stop overnight, obviously. Um, and then a lot of this movie is actually shot in the studio. Uh, most of the train car interiors are just a recreation done in a studio. Oh, yeah. Mm, definitely. Um, but like I said, you have these empty spaces and empty tunnels that you can shoot in, um, which is why I feel like you see more New York set subway shooting in new york movies than you do in chicago movies well i think that's i i wanted to say exactly just that because i'm sure there are some decommissioned underground subway lines i don't don't know that many though so i don't i don't think so either like surely there are some like underground tunnels but in terms of underground subway lines that aren't active in chicago I There's d- some that don't run at night, but it's very few and far between. It's like, yeah. yeah. And even it's then, like, like, what are you, where are you going to shoot at night to try to pass for day yeah. in a Chicago subway? And the, if, the, if it's not running. Yeah. And another thing about those stations are so tiny, too. Yeah. That's another thing that you compare New York and Chicago subway stations is that New York's feel big underground. Like, there will be, they're, part, they're, they're much larger. Yeah. There are parts where they're like five tracks next to each other yeah in chicago like it's three at most yeah yeah like. yeah because if you think about like i'm thinking about chicago shot movies and like most chicago set movies that are shot in chicago will have like a snippet on the trains yes it's, but it's only really L. a snippet and it's usually above the ground and, and it's usually thing. above the ground and a lot of times it'll even be like a lot of it will be exteriors or on the platforms, I feel like. Yeah. Like, I always marvel at... This is such a weird shot, to, but I always think about there's a shot in High Fidelity where it's a tracking shot of him, like, walking up the Wicker, the Wicker Park Blue Line Station. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. I, I worry three, we are currently three blocks from it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's literally just a shot of Cusack, like, walking up onto the platform, talking to the camera getting on and getting a seat mm-hmm. on the train. And I think about that and I'm like, you had to like shut down the blue line for that to do that because there's no way to reroute those trains. There's no bonus. Well, and New York has empty lines you can use. And that was the other thing too about our show. So I said like we, we did a yeah. train shot, we did a platform shot and the platform shot we did in the blue line, the Milwaukee stop at Logan Square. Mm-hmm. And we had to lock up that platform and that's a long platform. It's that's about a long platform. It's a like the Milwaukee Blue Line stop 
like if you if you walk from one end to the other end, you're basically walking like two city blocks. And so what we had to do is we had security blocking the exits and had to tell people to reroute, go down Milwaukee and go the other blue line entrance. Then we had to have other lock PAs at the midpoint of the state of the platform underground to lock up like the crowds and that stuff. But we also had background in it too. It, it's a whole thing if you want to shoot like an underground above ground platform for any public transportation. Yeah. It's such a fucking hassle. And yeah. Hey, uh, hey Stuart. Yeah. How long are we into this episode? How long have we been recording? Hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how far are we into the movie? They have not taken the train yet. <laughs> they have not taken the train yet. <laughs> Colt, do you have an how out? Long, do you, do you how have long an out time? We just spent talking about filming locations in yeah, Chicago. I'm sure we could. A, movie, a, a lot. A lot, I'm sure. Uh, what's your out time? Do you have an out time? It's currently 5 p.m. Central. I think it's yeah, like four, no, four. I don't. Okay. <laughs> I mean, okay, if I'm being honest uh two hours from now if we're still going two hours from now we can clear it up in two hours cut. we we've been able to sprint sure? through a plot before are we've been sure? able, that is the least sure? interesting thing they take they kidnap the train who gives a shit <laughs> they take the train and they get out the train yeah so let's just get to that point okay so, let, let, let me let me blow through this so john travolta Luis guzman two henchmen two henchmen they get on the train they take the train hostage they decouple a single car yeah. Yes. And let everyone off the train that's not in the front car, decouple the front car with their hostages, and then basically just park themselves in in a stretch of the tunnel. Yeah. Yes. And there's a quick bit where like Travolta does kill a Metro uh, Transit cop. It's not Travolta. It's the one oh, guy. Oh right, who's right, right. Like a it's one of the random guys. Psycho. And that's an interesting bit that it should be established because it it shows right away they're they're trigger happy to kill people but not not just that they're trigger happy but that they're disorganized like it's it's like the wayne grow thing in heat right Mm -hmm. it's like you have the one guy on the team who's maybe a little too trigger happy but you watch something like heat when rango opens fight when wayne grow opens fire everyone else is like what the fuck is this guy doing but when this guy just starts randomly gunning people down and to be fair it is a cop he guns down it's not just a civilian. Um, you kind of get the sense that like they haven't had the conversation about this because these guys aren't hardened criminals. They're guys hmm. playing at being hardened criminals. I and mean, they've Travolta like, grabbed these two gunmen, but they don't really have like a plan of attack. I will but Tra- like Travolta kills a lot of people but in this. Travolta- well he kills them when he says he's going to. And he doesn't do it like Grace. Travolta is essentially playing the bad version of his character from Mad City in this. Because in Mad City, he's a guy who takes hostages in over his head and then just kind of freaks out. He accidentally shoots a guy at one point. But he actually counts down and and pulls the trigger for one. That's what I'm saying. This is my point. When they kill the cop at the very beginning... They're not ready for that. Yeah. They're they're caught off guard because they thought they would have time before the police were alerted to them. But Mr. they didn't consider the possibility of there being a cop on the train. I just think- like, and that's the first sign you get that these guys kind of suck at what they're doing. I don't see Travolta so much as like an out of his depth criminal. I see so much as he's so radicalized that that that's how i see travolta is he's someone who has been radicalized in his belief that you know the system hates him now and he 
has no way to get out of it anymore like from being like the wall street guy mm-hmm. i still that was something that kind of bumped me a little about the movie is like they they give you like small snippets and pieces of of writer's backstory but none of it really ever like clicks along the way you just eventually get to the point where he grabs the money and then he tells denzel to shoot him and mm-hmm. it kind of gives you a little bit of insight but like there wasn't ever any given point of like okay this guy started in wall street he lost all his money or whatever in this deal or he got arrested for this thing or whatever and this have all happened and now he's this guy i mean they do little pieces and there is like one connecting bit with the mayor but i felt like overall like there i i didn't have like a a full cohesive picture of who this guy was until by the time the movie ended i don't know about that i understand i don't know about that but so I, mean, I, I think my my counter to that would be I, I don't think he's a very complicated person. Mm-hmm. I it, think he's just like a slimy Wall Street loser. He's a Those wall- people aren't complicated. They just they just think they're in charge. Travolta is playing a guy who thinks he's in charge. And to some degree he is. And to some other degree, he really isn't. And I think this movie is gradually about the growing understanding that he's never really a threat mm-hmm. to anyone. He might be a threat to the people on the train, but this movie is kind of about how that doesn't really matter. Cause there's, there's no way he's ever going to get away with it because there's no way he's ever going to get away from it. There's never a chance. The system, the system of New York is built against him. And the I think- organism of New York is going to squash these guys. And, I, and nothing Denzel Washington or John Travolta do matters ultimately I, in the course. Because I think it's telling that what defeats Travolta at the end of the movie isn't Denzel. It's not the police. It's traffic on the bridge. It's traffic on the bridge, and it's Travolta's own desire to be in charge. Mm-hmm. It's the one-two punch of both those things. Because if there's not traffic, and we'll talk about it when we get to the end, but if there's not traffic at the end of the movie, he gets away. Mm-hmm. But there's no, there was never a possibility that there wasn't going to be traffic because everyone, because in addition to the subways being crowded, the bridges are going to be crowded. Yeah, because like let's just let's just if we're t- we're in the ending, but I think I might forget this if we when we actually get to the ending. Everyone, all the hostage takers die in this. Yes, which is a big the big change this movie makes from the original, where the original. They either die or they get rounded up because, you know, the system is smarter than they are. Yeah. And in this one, New York squashes them like flies. But they all die in, like, embarrassing ways. Travolta gets held up by traffic and functionally commits suicide by cop. Guzman gets shot by an accident. Mm -hmm. And the two goons kind of just get got by, like, divine providence. They just happen to walk out the subway and then, like, for some reason, it's technically kind of a plot hole. I think they like shout like a line to justify it. It doesn't feel that justified on a narrative level, but it feels justified on a cosmological yeah. level that these two guys who aren't that important walk out of the subway and every cop in the city is suddenly on <laughs> Yeah, it surrounds Because they're losers. <laughs> they don't matter. It doesn't matter. They were never going to matter. This movie is about to what degree do people matter more than the state? And the answer is fuck you, the state matters more than anything mm-hmm. else. You're either on board or you aren't. Yeah, you either play the game or you don't. Yeah, which is what the whole Gandolfini stretch of it all is. 
and playing just the fucking i mean really cashing a paycheck good for john gandolfini really kind of sleepwalking his way through this movie <laughs> um james gandolfini sorry he's kind of just showing up doing like a kind of rudy and then getting out He's doing a kind of Rudy, but the character's more based on Bloomberg. It's a yeah. very weird performance. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't seem like he's that happy to be in the movie. Um, he's fine. Mm. He's one of those actors who just brings a natural presence yeah. that, that you can coast by on. Yeah. Like he's not doing his um Lonely Hearts uh Detective Stromboli. Yeah. So Cole the, we recently did an episode on the film Lonely Hearts, which is a Travolta have you seen it? It's in my podcatcher. I have not seen it. I okay. have no idea what this movie's about. It's a Gandolfini Travolta two-hander of where they're trying Great. to catch the Lonely Hearts killers. And okay. Travolta barely speaks in the movie. He's like in mourning the whole time, which leaves Gandolfini to do most of the talking. And almost every line, and he's playing like a New York Italian cop. And almost every line of his is something like, yeah, I was down at the fucking like pastrami deli. And the, you know, <laughs> he's, the entire time he's just rambling on about that shit. To the extent that we just called him Detective Stromboli in the episode, because there's no, there's nothing more to it. But he's but not yeah, even. But anyway, yeah, the plot, the thrust of this movie, the meat yes. of this movie. Travolta and his guys have taken these people hostage. Denzel is just the MTA dispatcher who happens to be on the horn. Yes, and the meat of this movie is an extended series of conversations that these two men are having over the phone. It's really the radio. But basically, as I said to you, Jeff, this is a movie about two movie stars having a long phone call. Yes. And, and I anytime someone, rules. And anytime a non-movie star tries to jump in, they are quickly cut off. They are quickly cut off. And I think what it is is that both these two men recognize something in each other. Mm. And what they recognize is the idea that they're the central characters in this narrative. Yes. And that and that everyone else is not and this is why I think this movie's a two-hander. Because I think this movie is about the relationships movie stars have on screen to each other as compared to the relationships movie stars have to character actors even if they don't meet face to face until the very mm. end of the movie because these two immediately connect. Yes. And they see that they're the same person, both in that metatextual sense and in this narrative sense that they're both guys like, who feel like they were conned by the system. Guys who say they're conned oh, by yeah, the system. Oh, yeah, but they they totally did the crime. But guys who are actually just like bottom feeders looking out for themselves. Yes. He and took Denzel a says he's not that guy. And he took a bribe. That's the question, right? He the took movie a bribe. doesn't really take a side. He took a bribe, but he used it for his kids, which I think he says he used it for his kids. Right, but he, he still says took a bribe. lot of things. It's a it, do you? It depends on what your what does your, what your moral seesaw. The is. movie sets me up to believe him, though. But he says he took it from his gave it to his kids after like five straight minutes of him insisting it never happened in the first place. Yeah, because it would incrim he was he's surrounded the, by all his bosses and didn't want to incriminate yeah, him. But, but why is he telling the truth now? Like the movie doesn't that's the thing. That's what I'm saying. We are inclined to believe Denzel Washington because he is Denzel, Denzel Washington. Washington. Because the movie mm, like shoots him I like don't. a good guy, because he is scored like a good guy. But is if is you actually think about it. Is he a good guy in this movie? Yeah. Yeah. According to according to what besides 
the very Denzel Washingtonness of him. I don't think it's all the Denzel Washingtonness of him. I think it's about how the narrative structures the story around the character. But he took a bribe. And, took a bribe. Gave, and I understand that. And characters can have flaws, but it doesn't mean they're the bad guy. He tries to weasel out of it at every opportunity. This this is the opposite of the Save the Cat moment for Denzel Washington, where it's like we think he's a good guy all along, and we're wondering, like, okay, where, where does he have his flaws? Like, why are mm. we supposed to trust this guy? And then we find out that, oh, no, he's not a perfect guy. He did do something wrong, but he did it for whatever reasons but mm. he ended up like whether he gave it to his kids whether you think that's a good thing but maybe whether he's atoned for his sins but i think it just adds a, a spice of flavor to his like character depth mm. i think it just adds depth to him and i don't think it necessarily targets him as one or the other i think it's just nuance mm. and i think the same thing could be said for travolta like he's not he's not just the bad guy but he's also not just the good guy i mean he's a murderer mm. he's a wall street guy he's taking people hostage he's putting people's lives at risk but Oh, because he was conned by the system. Like, But nope. he wasn't conned by the system. Well, he says he was conned by the system. He, he says he so was, does, but he's... So does Denzel. He says he but was that's what I'm saying. Travolta what, is clearly all, a psychotic But That's what I'm saying. Like, it's like monster. you're all proving my point is that it's not just like one flip side or the other. It's all nuance. And mm -hmm. I think you can sort of take in your own evidence and information as whatever you want. And if you have like an interpretation of it, I think that it should be validated regardless. And so for me having Denzel like show up at his job. He's a family man. He has kids. He's really good. He has high aims. He started from the bottom. He, he's hardworking. Now we're here. He's taken, a, taken a bribe and he's done some shady shit. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think it's all just in efforts to what his goals are. Mm -hmm. And his goals aren't uh, malintentioned. Yeah. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily turn me away from like rooting for him at all. Whereas John Travolta oh, no. doesn't do anything to make me not want to see him killed or put behind bars. Mm -hmm. Like there isn't a single saving grace moment for him, in my opinion, in the movie. Well, no, I mean, I think Travolta is is uh, clearly like a monster in this movie. Yeah. You know, he he's a murderer and worse, he's a, a stockbroker. Um but he uh <laughs> good one. Thank you, John. That was good. That was good. That was good. Um but he keeps saying, like, this movie is predicated so much on this, like, elemental connection that Travolta feels from Denzel the second he starts talking to him. And it's that he recognizes s something of himself in Denzel. Like, I don't if, – if you read that as just bluster, I think there's nothing to this movie. Mm -hmm. But if you read that as true, then I think the movie becomes the question of, like, why do we justify – you know, why do we want to, like, brush aside, like, bad behavior in movie stars? Why are we so willing to, like, go on Denzel Washington's side when for most of this movie he's just taken a phone call? Mm -hmm. Why Why are we cheering at the end when he all of a sudden is going vigilante and hunting down John Travolta in action that undeniably leads to a man's death? And that's where we're doing I, that because it's Denzel Washington. But I I almost disagree with that just because that did bump me in the movie as well. That Denzel, who for the entire portion of this movie is just a dude who gets caught up in a phone call. Mm -hmm. And when he gets told to go home, sure, he says like, oh, I do want to see this through, which you could say, yeah, that's him trying to insert himself into the hero spotlight. Yeah. Or you could just say he's someone who is genuinely concerned about it, like a good buddy of his, the the motorman yeah. got shot, 
there's other people that are at risk for this and he wants to see it through. Stuart, you could, you could make, you have to go deeper. No, no, well, but no, I am, but hear me out. But like then eventually he does agree and he does go home or at least he's on his way home. And it's John Travolta that reels him back in. And so for all, all this movie, nothing really made me think otherwise of, Oh, like he doesn't really want to mm. be here. I mean, he's here and he understands he's here and he has like a moral duty to like see it through to the end. But then after he delivers the money, after he escapes from them, then he does decide to all of a sudden, and I will say all of a sudden, cause it is suddenly to be like, okay, actually I'm going to go after these guys. I am going to take my gun that the cops gave to me just for my own personal protection, but I'm going to use it to hunt these guys mm. down. And that bumped me. I was like, okay, now this is not who we've been building up this character to be. And now all of a sudden he wants to like what murder Travolta, kill a guy, guy? or at least stop. He wants to be a hero. He wants to kill him. He He wants to be a hero. Does he want to kill him or does he want to stop him? Those are very different things. He wants to be a hero. In, in a summer action movie, are those two things different things? Yes. If you're watching a Denzel Washington movie and Denzel Washington has a gun and he's hunting down the bad guy, is there a distinction within our expectations as yes. spectators? Because he didn't have between... to pull the trigger. And I'll tell what? you, he didn't have to pull the trigger. But as an audience member. I'm, I'm not saying literally within the narrative. I am saying within the generic function of a movie like this, once Denzel Washington touches the gun... We want Denzel Washington to kill to the bad shoot guy. the guy. And my question is, I think this movie is because we it is so jarring that Denzel gets up and becomes an actioner at the end. I think this movie is asking us, why are we willing to extend this much grace to a movie star who we have coded as good and not to a Travolta. I'm not saying we should be extending the grace to Travolta, mm-hmm. but I think the movie is basically saying these guys are the same, but I'm going to frame one of them differently so that you then the audience are willing to excuse away all the red flags that I'm shoving in your face about this. But if you take both characters at their baseline level, Denzel is in this movie. He's a guy who took a bribe, was demoted, and then decides he is the best person to catch a criminal and takes a gun to go do it because he wants to be in people's good graces again and the counterpoint is travolta in the same thing is a guy who he went to prison for it was he essentially just laundered money right like it was some sort of wall street like he for lack of a better term he took a bribe and he uh wants to be on top again so he takes a gun there's essentially the same situation. The characters react differently beyond that point, but at a baseline level, they're the same character type. But I think also to to maybe po- to pick holes in that point, you could also make the case that the movie is trying to distinguish the differences between the two guys. Because yes, it sets them all up as the same. Travolta carries a gun into a subway from a man who was at the top, fell to the bottom, wants to work his way atop. Denzel, who's a guy who worked his way from the bottom, got to the top, took a bribe, fell to the bottom, has to work his way back up to the top, but still has high goals, grabs a gun, goes after Travolta. But what's the difference? That in that standoff on the bridge... He doesn't want to shoot, but he does. No. he. That's what I'm saying. This is where the movie could have made a side turn, is that he has a gun aimed at Travolta, and the Travolta says, you're going to shoot me, you're going to shoot me, or I'm going to kill you. Travolta pulls the gun, 
and Denzel doesn't shoot him. And instead, Denzel gets shot. Maybe he dies. Maybe he just gets wounded. Um, and then the cops kill Travolta. And the movie ends with us knowing that, yes, these two guys started from similar circumstances, but they don't have to go down the same path. That's your version of an ending? That's my version of the ending that it could have taken that would have made slightly more sense to me than Denzel just ra radically suddenly becoming a vigilante going after guy. the movie wants to make the point at the end that they are the same guy. Yeah. And that's why I don't, it makes the but I don't think does. I don't think it did the work necessarily with Denzel's character to make me believe that. Mm -hmm. But I think I think that's because you're on board with Denzel. Yeah, because the you're, movie sets me up to be on board. You're making assumptions about this character that I think the movie is trying to like wants you to make. Right. But I'm saying that I think the movie, this is the, again, the Tony Scott rotten foundation thing is that once you start pulling on this thread, does he have kids? Do we ever even see the kids? I don't think so. He, we only see he the talks about the kids when it's convenient. This, the, the motor man, the, we, we skip past this, but the motor man running the train is someone that Denzel's character knows. Mm -hmm. He does and have kids, by the way. Occasionally, Denzel will bring him up once he gets shot as like, this is why I'm doing this. But he never seems that worked up about it. And you're not going to tell me that Denzel Washington is too bad of an actor to sell me on him caring that his friend is dead. He doesn't care that his friend is dead. He cares more that John Turturro is taking over his desk. Yeah. I'm, this is what I'm saying. Yeah. Is is this movie works as a thriller? It also works as an analysis of a corner. thriller. Yeah. It works as it. A... <laughs> Your face right now. It's so good. I love it. No, this is all fine. <laughs> like I get it. I understand. It, I, I, it it translated to me differently than it translated to you guys. Like the the key difference in this movie between like a fugitive or something is that the fugitive puts the work in at the beginning to establish like Harrison Ford is innocent and a good person. He's a doctor. Yes. This movie puts the opposite in at the beginning where it's like Denzel Washington is a questionable guy who does not have the training for this. And that is why like in the fugitive, I have no problems being like, yeah, Harrison Ford's going to get the one-armed man. He's going to discover that Provasic is me. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think, I think it's telling that they keep on bringing up Catholicism. Yes. And not only do they keep on bringing up Catholicism, but that Travolta's fixated on, like, the, the Catholic idea of that everyone's a sinner. Yes, and that, also that... That life that... needs to be about repentance. And for Travolta, that's just his way of excusing the fact that he uses and abuses and kills people and is just willing to do whatever it takes. But again, if we take the fact that Travolta sees something of himself in Denzel, which is an idea this movie I think is breaking pretty literally, then that becomes the question again of like, well, how has Denzel sinned? If you take Denzel, it's Walter's his character name. I'm terrible at character names. If you take Walter at face value He's justified in everything he's doing, but I think the movie because, doesn't really back that up. And I think a really interesting way that this movie frames that to go to the with the Catholicism idea is that out, very early in the movie, Travolta refers to like the drivers 
cabin of the train, he's like, this could be a confessional. He just kind of says it offhandedly. And then the only times he's talking to Denzel, he's in that booth. And that's the only time he opens up about himself as a person is in the confessional booth. In which he, you know, tells Denzel Mm. a little bit about his past. And in some way, it's kind of like the sinner and the priest relationship, except the priest is also a sinner. What makes him, what makes Denzel justified to be on the other side of that confessional booth? Can I, can I talk about the very ending of this movie for a second? I feel like we should just talk about the very ending as if we're at the very ending. Because... <laughs> no, there, there's stuff in the middle I want to get to. Okay. I, well, I feel. How about this? Because like, I feel like we're, we're going to do this all episode. I feel like we should just... Talk let's, about the let, movie. Let's toss out the structure of plot points. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Let's just, just talk about the movie. Yes. Okay. So yeah, whatever you want to talk about the ending. So, so I, I, I think the last couple minutes of this movie uh, rule... Mm-hmm. Because so, like we said, this movie ends. With Travolta on the frame. bridge, Denzel holding him at gunpoint. The cops closing in. Travolta basically, like my reading at least, is that he's so desperate to be in control that he's more willing to commit suicide by cop because that's something that he is actively doing. Yeah, he's than to let himself choice. get taken in. So he draws on Denzel and basically forces Denzel to shoot. Something that Denzel does without hesitation. Mm-hmm. The second Travolta's got his hand on his gun, he's down. Yeah. And then we get this beautiful shot of John Turturro in a helicopter saluting the corrupt MTA agents who just gunned down a man. Mm-hmm. The corrupt vigilante who yeah. just gunned down a man is getting saluted by the police and then there's this conversation between him and Gandolfini where Gandolfini's basically like the city's going to have your don't back. worry don't worry we're going to take care of you and again if this is a this is where i think it really clicks because you're kind of expecting Denzel to like do the moral thing and be like no i'm going to did i you guys see the guilty no no the, the Jake Gyllenhaal movie i've not Okay, I'm going to briefly Fuqua. spoil the guilty because rewatching this, I was like, oh, the guilty is kind of just ripping off the Tony Scott taking yeah, the, the ending of this. So the guilty for the uninitiated, it's a remake of a Dutch film. I want to say um, it's a movie set entirely in a 911 dispatcher office mm-hmm. um, with Jake Gyllenhaal as a, you know, disgraced cop who's under investigation for a shooting, you know, yeah. juggling phone calls to try to save this woman's life. And at the end of The Guilty, after having gone through everything, he decides, I'm going to throw myself at the mercy of the court and take responsibility for what bad things I've done. Yeah. Even though I could totally walk clean because now I'm a hero cop. And when Denzel is presented with basically that same option, that Gandolfini says, hey, I can make this go away. Go away. Do you guys remember what Denzel does? He smiles. He just smiles and laughs and doesn't commit in either direction. And then this is telling Gandolfini says, let me drive you home. And Denzel says, no, I'll take the train. It's faster. How is Gandolfini, the corrupt image obsessed cop, the mayor introduced in this movie? By saying the subway's faster than his car. Because that matters more for PR. Mm hmm. That's what matters is what people think of yeah, you. The president and taking the subway, 
And in his one scene where Denzel Washington talks to his beloved wife, played by Academy Award nominee Ingenue Ellis, in a very thankless role, she asks him to get a gallon of milk. Mm-hmm. And what does Denzel do? I'll tell you, I'll get a half gallon. Movie? He gets her a half gallon. He's splitting the difference between the good guy and the piece of shit right to the very end of this mm-hmm. movie. I love it. This is the best fucking movie ever. Made. Am I, I, I going to knock this up another half star? <laughs> am I going to knock this up another half star? The problem is, I mean, if I'm getting critical here, the problem is, and yes, Stuart, I agree with you. Once Denzel Washington goes into action hero mode, I think this movie is intellectually in- interesting, but it is kind of boring. The third act of Denzel and Travolta running around in the subway tunnels is long and dull. There's not much to it. No. A lot of it's just because it spends so much time of just them running from place to place. Ugh. And kind of like identical place to place. And there's like a kind of a car chase. Like you, you could cut a fair bit of this off and just like have it's the same thing with like I'm trying to think of another movie that does a similar ending to this where it comes down to just like the two people chasing each other, but like kind of streamlines it and does it quick. Whereas this Ooh, is like blowout. All right, heat. they're in blowout the, heat. They're in they're in the subway, then they're on the street, and then they're in the cars, and then they're on the bridge, and then they're on the lower section of the bridge. And every bit of it, nothing. There's no like sub interactions. There's not much excitement. It's well, just, and I'll add something more to that as well, which is like, first off, Cole, I agree with you in everything uh, in terms of all this work that the movie is doing in terms of setting up the convolution between those two characters before the Denzel vigilante shift. Yeah. Because then from the Denzel vigilante shift up until the standoff, it it isn't paying off any of that, that work it did for itself. Mm-hmm. And you could say, well, but it's not hurting the work it did for itself. And I would agree to that. But it's not taking any of that work it did in that first, like, this movie's what, an hour and a half? Hour 45? Hour and 50, I think. Hour and 50? It's not doing Wait, hour forty six. Hour forty six. It's not doing the work it did in the first hour twenty minutes, and then putting all those pieces. Okay, I'm about I'm about to pull off a pull up a real weird reference into this. Harry Potter. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part Two. Okay, yes. you ready? So after Harry kills one of the Horcruxes in the Room of Requirements, and then he has to find the snake, and literally like they find out where Voldemort's going to be it's going to be at the cottage below like the grounds and then it just does this like sequence of them running through Hogwarts to get there and you could say oh yeah it's a scene of just them running to get to where they got to do and they got to dodge all the battle and stuff but what is implanted in all those little moments is all of the movies beforehand because the first thing they encounter is a troll is a troll and then they encounter the spiders Spiders, and and there's a werewolf it goes through all of that and what that sequence is doing is it's actually paying off the work that it had done of granted this is a franchise eight movies long but i'm saying with this chase scene is it's not doing that it is not taking the work that it did all beforehand like you could say like and like well actually there's one bit i will give it credit to and that is um denzel steals a car He's, like, trying to do the right thing by going after John Travolta, but to do that, he has to commit Grand Theft Auto, mm-hmm. which I think is, to, to your point, Cole, is kind of interesting. But I feel I like... Mean, 
nothing else is really being done with this scene and it makes it boring and it makes it like what am i watching here this is a sudden shift whereas i feel like you could keep this the exact same scene you don't have to change much but just implant those moments that it had been setting up before Mm -hmm. i mean i guess this is this is my like tony scott master of subtext um rotten foundation thing is that like i i do i agree It, it is not doing that because i think at least from my reading, it, it has done that already. And to restate that would to be mm-hmm. at least I think maybe the movie would feel like that would be hitting it a little too hard. Mm-hmm. That it that it that it wants to work as an action movie so that you can kind of have a bad taste in your mouth after. Can I briefly tangent because you said yes. something that means I have to then say something, Jeff. Jeff, speaking of. Do you remember how good movies used to look? Yes. This movie came out June 12th, 2009. I think I know what you're about to say came out the same weekend. Did not come out the same weekend. Oh, but the same month. Came out a month later. Um, Harry Potter and the the Half-Blood Prince. Prince Shot by Bruno Delvanel. Summer movies used to look like this. They used to look great. Movies used to look incredible. And this movie does look really good. This movie looks insane. I mean, every Tony Scott movie looks insane. It's bug nuts that he shot this on film. Um, Super Like, 35. it actually hurts my brain. It would have been so much easier for him to shoot it digitally mm. and get the exact same look. But he committed. And it, I yeah. think it pays off in the color. My my problem as, as a digital fetishist, which I think Jeff knows I'm a mm-hmm. hardline digital fetishist, the, the problem with most digital cinematography is it wants to look like celluloid. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of just a pale imitation. Tony Scott is weirdly the opposite. He wants to make film look like digital. Yes, because it's a very digital-looking movie. Mm-hmm. Well, because he is, he is again, to make the Michael Mann connection. If Michael Mann's the guy who's like, what can we do with digital cinematography to make it its own distinct art form? Tony Scott's kind of the same with nonlinear editing. Yeah. That, that Tony Scott cuts movies in a way that is completely divorced from how you had to cut movies on a Studebaker. Mm-hmm. And that's why he's playing with like frame rates so much in this movie and, he's, he's, and freezes and ramping. And yeah, he's playing with frame rate freezes ramp. He's playing with text on screen, text on uh, screen, hard, hard cuts, a couple weird, like fades to black just to like mess with the rhythm. Like they um, mom- swoop wipes. This is the same year as speed racer. This yeah. year after speed racer, but he's doing like a little bit of the, the, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, like the, the speed camera thing. wipe that Speed Racer does a lot of, and that Scott Pilgrim's going to do the next year. Where's He's the, doing that a couple yeah. times. And that, and you, there's the random times where like it zooms out from a character, and then let's just keep zooming. It goes like a Google Maps view, and then it goes whoosh, whoosh, Grand Theft Auto Five style when you're switching between a character and just goes. Which somewhere I else. feel like we we get a lot of movies these days that have like similar rhythms to this, yeah. but they feel so manufactured and there's something about um this isn't even like the most intense scott film in this regard you know domino and man on fire are the ones that are like really almost unwatchable at points which i love they're they're so intense but they it feels like a beating heart almost it feels very human and the the thing that this movie going right to that point where you just said like movies after that have tried to do this i think in regards to Travolta's career and where he's at at this time, there's a very similar thing going on in this. Because I feel like most of Travolta's the next era of him, 
a lot of these movies, like, you know, from Paris with Love, the forager killing season, are trying to do the same thing as this movie with this character, where he's the heavy. Mm-hmm. He's, like, the bad guy in it. He's the tough, like, the tough guy with crazy mustaches and shit, where you want to, it's, you know, play that comparison between him and the hero. But none of these movies have the masterstroke of, like, a Tony Scott to really put the work in to make that happen. And instead you just get lazy John Travolta action performances. And I think this is a perfect segue. We can keep talking about the plot. I'm not saying like we should segue into this section to get away from talking about the plot, but I do think we are, this is a perfect segue into how did this movie do? And can I briefly, what was, how was it received and how much did it make? Yeah. Before, before we go into the segue on that, can I just say, yeah. Um, I actually think having gone through this whole journey, you might actually, you two might be right to have this be the start of the Travolta exploitation. You think so? Period. Because to some degree, like you said, a lot of the movies that follow are trying to have Travolta be the heavy. But what this movie gets that those movies don't get, I'm assuming I haven't seen any of them, is that again, Travolta is a loser. Yeah, he's not a tough guy. He's, he he's scary because he's so willing to kill people. But if he wasn't so trigger happy, he's just a Wall Street guy with a bad neck tattoo. Yes. Like, Travolta has passed the point in his career where he can be Medicine. a credible threat as a bad guy or a good guy. Also, weird sidebar. <laughs> uh, I know it's a total coincidence. Really feels like Heath Ledger's Joker at points. Yes. In the way that he will like spout philosophical yeah. musings that kind of feel like the character is bullshitting just to bullshit. Yeah. Which we know Travolta's doing because there's the one bit where he's like, I have to pray to God. Yeah. And then he's just trying and he's just trying to buy time on his own. Yeah. With this stuff. Um can I take a quick break to go take a leak? I'm sorry. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Be, do we want to do we've a, been this for like two hours? Well, no, I mean, Jeff and I can keep going. So okay. I'll, I'll be you, back in like 30 you seconds. You can okay. go. We, we can will quickly riff. talk about the uh, the aftermath. Can, of I, can I just say that I am so glad, even though we whether we may have been right making this the beginning of the trouble exploitation or maybe we've been wrong, whichever way, I'm glad this is the beginning. Yes. Just because of this conversation. Yes. <laughs> I am so glad because like, if it wasn't this, then it was going to be what for with from Paris with yeah, love. Yeah, from Paris with love. And like, great, we would have had we would have talked about a movie that was like hard to follow. Yeah, it's pretty dumb. We got to talk about that. Uh, it's like his fireman pole. We got to talk about movie. fireman pole. Yeah, Travolta when he goes down the fireman pole in that movie. You, you audiences will hear it in two weeks. I don't remember that okay. happening in the movie. Anyway, but like, I'm just I'm very glad that this is the Segway movie. Yes. This is the kickoff to yes. this trouble exploitation. We're kicking off with like some what, you know, as Cole would say, a masterpiece or what would audiences and critics say is pretty lukewarm, mm-hmm. which is why I want to get to that Segway because I think we're all making really good points here and we're all talking about what this movie was able to accomplish in the time and what other movies are trying to replicate but failing. Yeah. So then let's talk about this that. This is a movie that feels ahead of its time. And was well, it received like it was ahead of its time? No. This, this, like, we'll quickly talk about the reception of this movie. But there are there are still some things in the actual movie I want to talk about. Do we want to do that now, or do we want to? I mean, I, I I was just saying we could talk about how it did and how it was received, and then we can go back to the plot. But like, just because I think we're in like that perfect segue moment. Yeah. But what's uh, what's y'all's longest episode? 
Uh, well, right now we're in two hours and, fi- and 15 minutes, and I think we're going to blow past it. Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> Hold on. Keep well, talking. I'll I, look I, at what your longest episode well, is. Well, I think it's... Pulp Fiction? Pulp Fiction, maybe? I think it's Pulp Fiction, yeah. I think Becca beat someone by like one minute in that episode. Something like that, yeah. Hey, Becca, you hear that? Because <laughs> Pulp Fiction is I'll, like two hours and 24. Can we talk about how we just put out a 92-minute episode this week that we're recording? We put out Bolt. Was, Bolt? Bolt is in and out. Bolt is like the length of the movie. A crisp in and out. Yeah, whereas we're, we've already exceeded the runtime. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, this, two this, hours and 24 minutes. I was right. You're going to cut out all the times we're talking about how long this has been, right? No, we cut nothing. No, no we, we have never cut a single thing on this we show. Don't, we don't cut anything out. Okay, we've only cut one thing, and it's when I said the name of a person who I name I shouldn't have said. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think I remember that. Uh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I mouthed it to him. All right. Uh, that's the only time. Okay, so okay. I, yeah, I think Pulp our... Fiction's the longest. We're definitely blown past that. Pulp Fiction's like two hours twenty three. This is uh, Swordfish is two hours twenty. So you're gonna blow past Swordfish. What was Swordfish? Two twenty. And Pulp Fiction was two twenty four. Yeah. So we, we you have about maybe we have maybe like twenty thirty more minutes to go. Twenty thirty. I'm saying like fifteen. We're at two hours and like we're almost right at like two hours. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Well, anyway. Anyway. <laughs> well, Jeff so. still wants to talk about the movie. Yes, I still want to. <laughs> We're not going to. We, I, I don't wanna, think we I can talk, talk about plot when we, when we started like going plot, plot, plot points, we got five minutes in and then gave up. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Okay. Well, Jeff, what do you want to say? Well, I, w- I wanted to talk about Travolta's character in this, being a Wall Street yeah. guy, and how the movie is clever in the way it sets up elements of that early on. Like, right away, he does that thing where, like, Denzel's like, how much money do you want for these guys? And he's like, uh, I don't, I do it. Uh, this is, oh, he says, this is a spot trade, not a futures transaction. So we're doing it person by person. And he gives them a specific, <laughs> he's like, each person's worth this amount of money. Now times it by nine. How much money do I want? And it's, and it's 10, 10 million, million and one cent. cent. And he says he keeps the one cent as a broker's fee. I don't know why. I just think that like, those elements setting up early on pay yeah. off later when it's like because they kind of just they kind of do just throw in that Travolta's a Wall Street guy. It's yeah. just Gandolfini's like who would thought who would think of that Ugh, a Wall Street well, guy. I love I love the the bit where they tell Gandolfini the, that it's ten million, and yeah. Gandolfini's flunky is like, oh, it, of course it's ten million. This guy's smart. He knows yeah. that that's the most money we can get at a moment's notice. Yes, that's the there's maximum. this there's this whole thing where they break down that like. I don't know if this is true or not, but the city of New York can, in a crisis, get $10 million in cash basically immediately as yes. a loan. Um, and Gandolfini's like, I don't, I didn't fucking know that. Why do you know that? Why does he know that? And I love that idea because, again, it, it, it's working on two levels. Travolta's smart. He hmm. knows what the most amount of money yes. he can get at a moment's notice from the city is. But Travolta's also dumb. Because he thinks he's a big shot. And he thinks he but can get he's that not because the actual big shots don't give a shit about that level of like petty machinations. Yeah. I mean because he's, real power. He's playing the Robin Hood stock stonks game during this heist <laughs> yeah. by checking but his real like gold. power isn't fucking GameStop stocks. Right. It's <laughs> it's having the NYPD at your beck and call. Yeah. That's what 
actual power is, and that's what Travolta wants. That's what this movie is saying. What it. power is? That's what yeah. that's that's what this movie is saying. What power? Yes, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because I'm sure this movie could spin a whole other direction and say that while John Travolta is a stocks bro, basically checking his GameStops like stuff yeah. and Nasdaq <laughs> and how him doing this whole train okay. hijack thing is Are, actually making okay, him real billions. Talk, isn't some like idiot trying to make a, a Robin Hood GameStop movie? Yes, that, okay. I think three people, one of them being Adam McKay, can have we, options. Can we please put John Travolta in that movie? Yeah, can put we Travolta please... in the fucking McKay can one. He'll can get we... an Oscar. Can oh we please have... my god, Travolta in a McKay. Can movie. we please have the whole? That's movie. actually that was a joke. That's the best thing that could happen to his career, right? Yes, now. Travolta in a McKay movie. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I I just really want to see a movie in which John Travolta sitting like laying on a couch, just like on Robin Hood, refreshing his stonks. That could be like the 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 big short Magarabi bit. Yeah. Where it's like literally it's like No, I don't want I want him to be the main character. Yeah, no, well, he, I was thinking I was that. No, 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 no. I, I agree, I agree. I was thinking that too, but like if he couldn't be the main character, I would settle for that. Of mm-hmm. just like literally a bit where John Travolta is on the couch scrolling on Robin Hood and be like, "So you want to know about Robin Hood?" So <laughs> here's like that's yeah. literally all we get. <laughs> like John Travolta became, but I also agree. I want him to be a main yep. character in a McKay movie. Cuz that's that's the type of role he should be playing is like the kind of aloof idiot who uh thinks he's like above the uh who thinks he's a who thinks he's high status but is not right because he's gonna lose all of his game stop yeah because every movie where we've had him play he plays this archetype a lot that this movie is more subtextually what was the last real movie he was in the Gotti, obviously no (laughs) no um, no, in terms of real, you're breaking your promise. You're not supposed to talk about that movie on the podcast. The closer we got, I've gotten I've gotten a little okay, okay. with with sprinkling it in. Um, I have never seen Gotti, listeners, dear listeners of Travolting. Okay, all how many how many do you guys average? Uh, so we haven't checked in a little bit. We've had a, quite a few people telling us they've been listening recently. All quite a few of you Travolting listeners. I just want this on the record. I have never seen Gotti, and I never will. <laughs> so we'll see about that. I just want to respond to like what was his last movie. I do want to clarify and maybe real movie. Well, not even just I, that. I want to say what's the most real role he's done, and that's Robert Shapiro in American Ho- Crime Story. That would actually be. It's not a movie. It's a mini series, but like it's the most recent, like real thing, thing he's, he's done. done. If you're talking just movies, I honestly think the closest you come to that is Savages. It is Savages, and no, it is it is American Crime Story. No, that's exactly what I was looking for. It is actually Adele disease, like the actual death knell of John Travolta's career. And I'm sorry to you too. Is that? American Crime Story did not move the needle for him at all. Yeah. When it moved the needle for other people. Like, it did, like, it, that's kind of the thing that made Ryan Murphy, like, a serious deal. What? In that, that, that's what made Horror Story was before that. um, But the thing is, American Horror Story is a horror TV show that everyone's, that, like, can be dismissed as a horror TV show. The OJ show, it's, Everyone's like, this is serious. Ryan Murphy's a serious director now. Stuart, Jeff doesn't know anything about Ryan Murphy. I, I don't. It was a dumb thing he said. Let him take the L. Wait, it's okay. What did I We're going to fix it. Yeah. I'm announcing it here. Oh, God. Yeah. No, Mike, gonna... no, no, no. just no. said you're not cutting anything. Me and Jeff Sweeney will be doing a podcast in which we watch and review every episode of the te- television program Glee. 
I did accidentally uh, agree to do a Glee podcast with Cole, uh, in which we watch every single episode of the television series Glee. That did happen. And it's on mic now, so you can't back out. Stuart is removing his headphones. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, yeah so uh, American Crime Story is the answer to that okay so let's talk about John Turturro in this movie <laughs> <laughs> he's good he's good he's like, very good like he's the exact opposite of Gandolfini for me where he's also like could just show up but he's really like he's putting in the work mm-hmm yeah, John, it's it's that period of Totoro where he's just pop. I mean, he's always just popping up and stuff. Yeah. Uh, that was just a segue to try and get out of the Glee conversation. <laughs> and you're also going to watch every up. episode of the Glee Project. Mm. <sighs> yes. Jeff's cheating on me. Mm. Also, I, I do want to talk about the uh, the segment of the movie where the cops are trying to get the hot. The, uh, one, one second. Yeah. Who's recording this episode? these episodes for you? I don't know. TBD. You probably sitting there silently in a corner. Uh, think again, buckaroo. Yes, Stuart, in case you didn't hear, we are doing the Glee <laughs> podcast, and you have to be a part of it, but you're not allowed to speak <laughs> during the episodes. Um, find your own sound engineer. I will not be attending. <laughs> okay. So They'll be short. But I, before we get to the, the aftermath of this movie, I do want to talk about the part where the cops are trying to get the money to the train station. <laughs> Yeah, that was a bit. That was a good bit. Uh, it's, it's, and I love that the movie points out the stupidity of what they're doing, because like realistically, they should just put it in a helicopter and fly it there, right? That's like what probably would realistically happen. But the movie that's not dramatic, so the movie needs them to drive it. So the cops put it in a put it in a cop car. They get like eight bikes and they're just like driving it down the streets. Gandalfini's like, why didn't they put it in a helicopter? Huh? And they all just look at him silently. Yeah, which I think was the best moment ever. Because yeah, like, oh, none of them had a good answer. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, because I, it's. A... I, I do have the answer for that, though. Yes. So once again, it's brute force. It's yeah. real power. Yeah. Is that real the... power? Isn't thinking smart. It's that you can just do it anyway. Yeah. That you can. Because it doesn't matter that they. It, again, it ultimately doesn't matter that they lose the money. Mm-hmm. If Does you it, assume that they don't care about the lives of the people on the train, because they don't. Going along with that brute force idea, I like that the like the squad cars, like they destroy a taxi, probably kill somebody, and just keep going. Mm-hmm. And like even the squad car flips over, and two cops are pulled out, like bloody and dying, and the rest of the cops just grab the money, put it on a bike, and keep going. Like it's just going along with that, like. Brute force, like who's real moral in the situation? Like this money's going to save lives, but how many lives is it going to destroy on the way? You know? Yeah. Because it's about the PR. Yeah. It's not about saving the people on the train. It's about diffusing the crisis. Yes. Those seem like they're to the same thing, but they're not actually the same thing. Um, I also love that when we do get the final car crash, it is the wildest car crash of all time because Tony Scott rolls. Like Tony Scott's been like, you've been watching. Here's here's my gift to you for watching 
two people have a phone call for the last 45 minutes. I'm going to have a car get T-boned by a truck, flip like a hundred feet in the air off a bridge <laughs> and then land on another car. <laughs> it looks like something out of ambulance. Jeff. I had to bring it up. Can we, okay. Can we briefly ambulance? <laughs> Let's talk about ambulance. Michael Bay is making a car chase movie. Yes. How cool is that? It's so good. No, no, he's not okay, making, that was the no, ambulance. He's not just making a car chase movie. He's making an ambulance chase movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that was the ambulance. So was the Stuart side. looks ecstatic <laughs> that this conversation is still going. <laughs> All right, so Cole, how, how Cole, this... I, I do want to actually say, when you uh, when you stepped away for a second, Stuart actually was talking about how glad he is that this is the beginning of this new era. Because <laughs> This is a great conversation to start things off with. Listeners, I have requested to be on two future late period Travolta episodes. <laughs> He's coming back. I don't think those episodes will be quite as long. I don't know how long we can talk about those movies. Well, one of them, actually, both of them, I need to like hold a clinic on the complete career of the director. Yeah. And why they're important. <laughs> Wait, which other ones are you on for? I'll tell you off, Mike. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we got, one of them hasn't come out yet and it's questionable whether it's going to make it in time. Oh, Paradise City? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Paradise City um, audiences, we do want to say right now, Paradise City is a movie that has been shot. It was filmed over two weeks in Hawaii starring Bruce Willis and John Travolta. Have heard nothing about it since May of last year. Um, we promise whether it comes out during this run or whether it comes out in three years, we will come back and talk about that movie. And you I have, have our, And Cole will be there. You have our solemn promise. Okay. How, 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 how'd this movie do? Okay. Let's, let's, <laughs> how'd this movie do? <laughs> okay. So this movie comes out. Um, comes out June 12th of 2009. Uh, the Year of Our Lord. Um, and it doesn't do great, doesn't do terrible, it does. People hate it. Yes. Like, that, let's be very clear, the, people hate this movie. I mean, in, in a financial sense. It didn't do great, didn't yeah. do terrible. Well, what yeah. was his budget and what did it make? So it was a $100 million budget, which is the last time that's ever going to happen for Travolta. Yeah. And <laughs> then it comes out and it makes $150 million. So, like, it makes... For lack of a better term, it makes its budget back, but it doesn't really make its budget back. Because of Mark's four, games. Jeff, you know that times four. Yeah, times four. So it doesn't. It makes its budget back in a quote sense, for like the general person to look at it. But in yeah. terms, it loses the studio money. Mm-hmm. Um, Listeners, for those of you who don't know how movies work, this always bothers me. So I want to get this on the record. Um, if you see a movie's listed budget. The quick way to determine what the actual break-even point is to multiply the listed budget by four. Yes. Because generally, especially from a movie on this scale, they're going to spend an equal amount of money on marketing, and then everyone forgets, but studios only get... Half the money. Half of the box office gross. Because the rest goes to the theaters. So when you see a movie that cost 100 and made 150... That is a full. Well, it's all it's opening night, right? Because the the percentages differ over time. It, they, it, now it's its opening night. Two thousand nine, not so much. Yeah, this movie made this movie debuted at number three. Um, it was okay, I found the oh, movie. Can we I'm, play the box office game? <laughs> <laughs> Cole, do you want to guess what beat this movie? Um, 
this is 2009, but this is mid June. Iron Iron Man Two is comes out the next year. Yes, Iron Man um, Two is 2010. Wolverine is is Wolverine still hanging around? Uh, I don't have the full box office, but it is not one of the top two. Okay. Um. Yeah, I wouldn't. I can't remember. Oh okay. nine. Um. The films. Monsters vs. Aliens. No. That's probably lower too. That's like three weeks old at this point. The films that beat the Taking of Hell on one, two, three at the box office are The Hangover, which is on its uh, second weekend, and Up, Disney Pixar's yeah. Up, which is on its second weekend as well. So this movie did not beat two movies on its second weekend. Yes, I think Up is. What actually did it open against? I mean, what were the other movies that opened? I'm trying. I need to bring up box office. The audience is thrilled to hear me say my uh, Google search history. This episode's been really short, Jeff. We (laughs) really need to, like, pad it out. Okay, so I found the list. I found the box office listing of this week. I can't find what came out that day. Hold on. Um, Movie. I'm just going to say movies came out June 12, 2009. It's it's telling me Moonfall, Blacklight, and my best friend Anne Frank. None of these are, uh, no. Well, good for my friend Anne Frank making like, it onto that list. These movies, all, these movies come out this weekend. Why is it listing them for Friday, June twelfth? Hold on, I got it. I'm gonna answer my own question in a second. Oh yeah, okay. But anyway, the the top three at the box office: The Hangover, Up. Uh, Taken Pelham coming in number three, and then behind it is Night at the Museum Battle of the Smithsonian and Land of the Lost, starring Wolf Harrell. This movie opens against nothing, it looks like. Okay, it was just this. Everything everything else that opens this weekend opens limited. It opens against Dead Snow and Moon, but those are bo- both opened limited. Okay. So this is the dead week in between The Hangover and The Proposal. Okay. This should have done better than three. Yes, this was... I'm just saying. It's a Denzel... Movie. It's a Denzel Travolta Tony Scott film, and it's like, an action movie. Like, yes, it it should have a clear lane to itself. Now, what this movie does do decent financially is, uh, it's a good home video seller. Not surprised. This movie uh, makes fourteen point one million and sells nine hundred and nineteen thousand DVD units in its first week of DVD release, which is unheard of nowadays <laughs> just obviously yeah um but that is a decent haul it obviously doesn't push it past where it needs to be but it helps you know kind of cushion the fall a little bit how much is hold on i'm looking something up this is riveting audio <laughs> um but, but criti- critically critical wise how did so you? critically wise this movie generally just comes out and immediately gets compared to the original 1974 film sure of course um and audiences it gets that kind of like why do we need this reaction and we talked about this a little bit with mad city where it's like mad city is a victim of comparison yeah. for all the because everyone's just like we've seen this movie before it's called um dog day afternoon yeah why are we seeing it again right and i mean if there's one thing we've learned on this podcast it's that maybe movies shouldn't be so much as punished for that point yeah because this is an interesting reinvention of the original movie. It's not just redoing it again. Yeah. It has it has commentary to say on that movie. This I, is to me like the text like lo, like this movie or not. 
my, my problem with people who don't like this movie is that I've never met someone whose complaint about this movie is not primarily rooted in the original. It's not the Walter Matha Robert Shaw version, yes. which is also a wonder. It's a wonderful movie, but it's a very different movie. This to me, love it or hate it, is the textbook example of what a remake should be. Yeah. Because this movie is just remaking the idea. Mm-hmm. It is such a wildly different story interpretation. Yes. Um, and I've never read the book, but my understanding is that this is much more in line. It's not like a, oh, this is more of an adaptation of the book type deal. It's just a different um, interpretation of the story. It's the same basic. It is lit, not even the story, the idea of yeah. the story, which is train hijack city, low level city employee has That's, to be the hero. Yes. That's what remake should be is just take the nugget. And just do your own thing. And the problem is people get hung up on wanting to be Fidelitas and then being upset when something is Fidelitas. Yes. I do want to say, there's. you know how you know this movie's good? Because uh, uh, Tony Scott does a Washington movie? Armand White was critical of it. <laughs> That's how you know it's Man. good. <laughs> Armand White said, Tony Scott's craft cannot create uh, suspense. It substitutes noise, cursing, and brutality. I agree with every word he said. (laughs) I do not think this movie is suspenseful in the slightest, (laughs) nor do I think it wants to be. Do you agree with Armand White's point, but not his... You agree with Armand White's words, not his point. Not his conclusion. Not his conclusion. I agree with his point, not his conclusion. Which is, I think, what a lot of this episode has been. Yeah. You like that? Yeah. I'm I'm bringing it back around. Stuart looks like he's going to fucking murder me. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I mean, if we're getting into closing thoughts, I guess I should say that I obviously didn't put all of that legwork into my perception of this movie as I was watching it. I mean, I was watching this as more of like, I mean, it's kind of whether it's fortunate or unfortunate, sort of how I watch all of John Travolta's movies, especially nowadays, where it's like, you know, I watch it and I I get some interesting tidbits about it. I spot some cool little nuggets here and there, but ultimately I'm seeing a guy I've seen for so long now. Mm. And I'm just sort of like comparing it to all of his work he's done before. And, you know, I guess in terms of this movie in particular, uh, I saw this more as a Denzel vehicle with, you know, Travolta uh, doing well. I want to, I want to, I want to make that very clear for the record that you guys have talked a lot about what you love about this movie. I've not been super vocal and I'm not saying I disagree with all your points. Like I, I agree with a good chunk fair of them, but something I do want to be very uh, vocal about is I do like Travolta's performance in this movie. He's he is, good. He's really good in this. He's movie. very good. This is one of my like five favorite Travolta performances. I, I would say performance wise, yes, it is going to be, you know, maybe not top five, but it's up there. It's up there. It's definitely up there for me. And uh, it's like, one of the few performances that understand. Like I think it was almost one of our first episodes. Yes, I, I know what you're moment about to say. Moment. I know what you're about and to moment say. Moment by moment, Lily Tomlin gave this really profound quote about John Travolta, and Cole, you pretty much echoed what she said, probably inadvertently, that all of his performances are a facet of masculinity. Well, and it's also a, it's a 
high wire a balancing duality of yeah. so many different things whether it's feminine and masculinity or whether it's confidence versus cowardice whether it's you know um uh strength versus weak like he john travolta knows how to ride that line in a character he mm. knows how to like tiptoe it on one end where yeah. you're not quite sure like the aloofness you know yeah. that confidence versus that not so sure nature yeah. um and, and so to bring that back i agree then i think that tony scott knew how to use travolta in this yeah. movie very well he's utilized very well in this movie yes um travolta Travolta also sounds incredible in this movie. I yeah. wanted to give a shout out because like, obviously he has a high voice in general, mm -hmm. but he's like kicking it even higher. Yeah. In yeah. This one. And it's very like snivelly and shrill. And like, it's a very smart choice on his behalf to in a movie where a lot of it is going to be reaction shots of people listening to him to like, make his voice distinct yes something what yeah. travolta normally sounds like something that we don't really talk about this that much it's like travolta's impressions you know uh, his voices travolta does a, a fair number of voices and his work um and we've commented that a lot of those are very poor southern <laughs> accents he usually just um, defaults to the southern he, accent he does good brooklyn accents good new york accents Wait, he does good brooklyn accents i don't know about that um let me tell you something he does good um like midwest he played brooklyn Gotti. <laughs> well oh. well Is i Gotti? mean doesn't he play brooklyn in saturday night fever oh yeah, no. yeah he's playing sorry i blew out the mic yeah you blew out the mic yeah he's jersey no he's brooklyn no, because he's across the bridge. Oh shit! Oh, is he really true? Is he not the 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 non-existent person he's supposed to be playing, who allegedly existed in real life but does not exist in real life, was from New Jersey. Hmm. Well, I feel like you guys didn't say that on your Saturday Night Fever episode. That it wasn't a real person. Um, oh no, he is from Brooklyn. He's from Brooklyn, and uh, he is shit, Tony Monte Tony Monero. That's what I've been fucking Bro saying. Sorry, I thought he was Jersey. I apologize for yelling no, into the I, mic. I knew he was Brooklyn. Um, Stuart, uh, I take back every time I've disagreed with you this whole episode. <laughs> Great, <laughs> amazing, including because the hair ranking. Including, including, right? including the hair ranking, right? Including the hair ranking. I mean, I'm not arguing with the canon correct list. Shut the fuck up. This is not. <laughs> this will not stand. Uh, I will file a formal complaint. Um, so, but no, with the impression bit that I wanted to finish. Um, a lot of his impressions seem to be in the mid to attempted lower register. Yeah. And what I mean by that is Travolta naturally has a higher register voice. And so for him trying to sound like a deep, low voice, it doesn't really, like, I, I, I never really catch it because it's always just reads as middle register. Mm -hmm. uh, like, Edna Turnblad. He's still, he's just talking with. Let me tell you, Shem. Well, that's what I mean. It's like, is that real? It's that's almost Dr. Evil. That was good. Well, he's not talking with like, uh, I'm from Philly. I can do it. So I just watched, I watched Don't Look Up, which annoyingly got nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> Makes me want to hate that movie. The movie wasn't terrible, but it doesn't deserve it, movies that. No. Nah, I... <laughs> <laughs> I literally just armed Cole. <laughs> I activated him. Sorry, I, just, I just need to clarify something real quick. <laughs> that movie is, in fact, terrible. Go on. 
I didn't think it was terrible. I didn't think For it was a, home, a masterpiece. On, on the screen that we were looking at, Colin, <laughs> he went from like casual, like we're on hour two of recording this podcast mode to like a nuke ready to launch right up to the mic. <laughs> Sorry, just want to once again correct Stuart there. Don't look up is terrible. But like, okay, so Mark Rylands plays basically a combination between like Tim Cook and Steve Jobs. I forget and, where this started. Um, <laughs> where did this conversation start? Travolta's Why are we talking accents. About Mark Travolta's okay. accents. Hear okay. me out on this. I can okay. finish a point. Unlike you guys. Anyway. <laughs> so, no, like, Mark Rylance does, like, a voice where he's talking like this, like a really, like, high-pitched voice. And I really wonder if John Travolta got put into a role where the role called for, like, a high-pitched tone accent. A true high pitch. I'm not talking about in a Turnblad, because in a Turnblad, he's talking like how a woman with a deep voice would talk. Mm. From I'm, Baltimore. From Baltimore. I'm talking about John Travolta playing. I don't know what role. I hop down from that cloud real fast. Well, I'm talking about a role where Travolta has to. He normally talks in a register like this. Like this yeah. is his normal like register. But he well, raises, that's just he fantastic. raises it that's up just to like a this, I can't do it. this type of like a like a register, and he has to like really like really channel that breathiness. Like I wonder what because he can do it. I know he can do it because that's where his his register normally lies. Yeah. So that was my point. Okay, is I I want to see Travolta to do like an accent that's high pitch and tone. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think this is the I think this is the highest I've ever heard him go. But it's more like stressed out, angry, high yeah. pitch. Like this is my it's my best like John Travolta angry impression. But like look at it, look at it, look at it. Like <laughs> from Phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Like that's 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 the type of high pitch he's Remember doing. The trees and okay. Anyway, no. Right. no. Do we want to go right to closing thoughts? I gave mine. You gave your closing. I thoughts. gave mine. Travolta's great in this. It's a mostly a Denzel vehicle, but Travolta delivers a really good performance. Um, and I feel like the movie does have a point to it, but I don't agree with um, particularly how it tries to deliver that in the third act. Yeah. that's Those are my final thoughts. Cool. Any final thoughts on this movie? Closing um, opinions. I, I will admit that when I came on here at the start of this and said that this was the best John Travolta movie, I was being a little bit just provocative, just trying yeah. to push buttons. And having talked about this movie now for uh, how long have we been going? Uh, I'm pretty sure we're at 2.20. Having talked about this movie for two hours and 20 minutes, um, I am now being 100% earnest when I say that this is the best John Travolta <laughs> movie. Um, Tony Scott was a legend. Uh, there will never be anyone like him. True King. Jeff? Uh, oh, my my closing thoughts are, I mean, pretty much I feel like I said everything I liked about this movie during that episode. I went into this being like, all right, it's going to be a, probably a pretty good action movie, and I came out really enthused by this movie. This movie really had me during the proceedings. I hadn't seen it before, and it really um, it really drew me in the mismatch. I always love a good like crime story about, you know, Two cop, like a cop and a criminal, not so different, you and I. But I really appreciated this movie's commitment to exploring that idea beyond the basic, like baseline levels. Mm-hmm. And also, just this movie looks so fucking good. Yeah, <laughs> this looks movie so looks so good. good. Yeah, I forgot to say that like, in my closing. I kept forgetting, like, I kept being like, wow, is he doing this? Like, it'll be like six quick fire shots that you only see once. 
and they're all like crazy dolly track moves. And I'm like, how did you, how do you accomplish this? Like, how many cameras do you have? Like, Ridley Scott shoots with like 15 cameras at a time. Yeah, and Ridley and, Scott's movies look like dog shit. <laughs> and I don't, does Tony like, I just am in, in awe of his level of craft. And he shot this on Super 35. Yeah. He shot this on film. Like, that must have mm-hmm. taken so much time. <laughs> it must have taken so much fucking time. Oh, I, one one last thing that I I I I meant to bring up earlier and I didn't mean to bring up is I really love this movie's visual motif where Travolta is almost always obscured by something. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of times he's shot through a window. Yeah. Uh but he's always like there's always something in between him and the lens, whereas Denzel is always kind of free floating, but the camera won't stop moving when it's on Denzel. Mm-hmm. And it's very locked in place when it's on Travolta. Yeah. And this which is I think very... is like a great visual, like yeah. well, that's... embodiment of the trust issues this movie is invoking in the spectator. Yeah. That's very hounded home at the final standoff scene. Yeah. Because Denzel's in a clean frame, but it's moving. I think it's handheld. Whereas Mm -hmm. Travolta's on a locked off tripod, but it's behind a fence. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Hell yeah. This is great, guys. This was actually great. This was a really good conversation. I mean, yeah, to to sort of fill that point in that Jeff told you earlier, Cole, like I did say that like whether we were right or wrong in making this the beginning of the Travolta exploitation era. I am happy though that this was the beginning, just because otherwise the first episode of Travolta Exploitation would have been us talking about from Paris with Love, and I'm going to tell you this now. I don't have much to say about that. I don't have much to say about it. I don't remember <laughs> half that movie. I can invent a take on it if you <laughs> <laughs> just come to pretend to have opinions. Yeah, but just like yeah, like I'm glad that the first movie in Travolta Exploitation is at least is something that carries has some, some juice to it. Has some juice, and also maybe your longest episode. You might make it. Sa- Remember when Sam really thought he made it? Uh, <laughs> we missed it by how, four minutes. Wait, how How much longer do we have to go? I, it's really... I th- I think we're there. I think we're at 2.30. Hey, Did, Jeff, what do you think about The Last Jedi? <laughs> so, the, the, I can All fill right, this out by so... explaining why we think we're still there, because the Zoom... <laughs> no, reco- don't worry about it. Don't okay. worry about it. it this rec- is bad audio. It records... Of, yes. <laughs> no, we're not cutting anything. No cuts. Um, Stuart doesn't like to edit. <laughs> so, I, I don't like to edit. I have a full-time yeah. job. This is a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... We're, yeah, thank you. Stuart. This is a great conversation. Yeah. Flood, no, guys, this was incredible. This is so yeah. much fun. Thank no, this you so was, much. This was a really good time. Cole, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. I've really yeah. been looking forward to having you on because uh, <laughs> I, we had this conversation over a year yeah. ago. Yeah, we did. So when uh, I, I've said a lot, like the like the five or six people I reached out to first, Cole was on that list. And now a year later, we're finally, we've knocked out like four of the ones that asked me like a year ago in the past few weeks. So we're finally a. Uh, yeah. We're and finally paying our debts. We have well, now you're finally in the good movies. <laughs> oh, get... Life on a line's coming. Oh, That's going to be a five-minute episode. <laughs> <laughs> he gets on an electrical wire. A storm comes. He comes down. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, if there's nothing else anyone has to say, I will wrap us up and say thank you all for listening to this episode of Travolting. Make sure to tune in next week for our episode on the one and only Old Dogs. <laughs> an episode we definitely an episode we definitely didn't record two months ago. <laughs> um, uh, 
You can, as always, please remember to rate, review, subscribe on whatever platforms you're listening on. As a reminder, we are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. You can uh, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at TravoltingPod. Email us any comments or questions, TravoltingPodcast at gmail.com. Pop into our Reddit, r slash Travolting. You'd be the first. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jeff W. Sweeney. Find me on Instagram at StuartElmer95. Cole, anything to plug? Absolutely not. <laughs> Special thanks, as always, to Rebecca Johnson for our graphic design and Michael Van Bodingham Smith. Becca. Michael Van Bodingham Smith for this new theme music that is now taking you out. I hope you guys enjoy this new theme. Mike worked hard on it, and I'm very fond of it. Bye. Bye.